what a lovely time of year. Mince pies, mulled wine, confection ornately decorated with seasonal imagery, German markets springing up hither and thither, selling their spices and beverages and cheese dartboards. I have to say I'm turned around on the season since last year. Thanks largely to the Squiggly Podcast. It's just a shame we don't have any animated holiday specials coverage lined up and that my podcasting cohort Steve is nowhere to be found. Would have been nice to do it again. (laughs) I'm in too good a mood regardless. I'll just curl up with some spirits and the new Chuck Palahniuk. Yes, it truly is a serene, peaceful holiday season. Ho, ho, ho! What the actual f***? Ho, ho, ho! Is that coming from the chimney? Is someone coming down it? Ho, ho! Hello, Ben. I've just come down the chimney to deliver the glad tidings of the season. Home invasion! Eat mace, f***o! I will kill you! I will kill you in your face! Ben, Ben, please, stop, 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 Ben, it's me, it's me. Me who? Me, Steve. Wait, you're Steve? Yes. Dressed as Santa Claus? Yes! Sliding into my personal area through my top hole, down my heat tunnel? Well, that's quite an odd way to phrase it, but yes. This raises so many questions. Question one, who keeps mace by the Christmas tree? I just wanted to create a fun seasonal tableau like we did last year. But I don't feel fun. Or seasonal. I'm tremendously on edge right now. I see. This was massively misjudged on so many levels. I'm pretty sure I've got internal bleeding from from where you punctured me in the kidney with that fire poker just then. (laughs) No, Steve. What are you like? No, actually, I'm, I'm quite seriously injured. Well, while we wait for the emergency services to arrive, what say we knock out another one of our sterling podcasts? As long as it's not Christmas-themed, of course. Oh, podcast, yeah, okay. So, who do we have lined up in the old squiggly chamber? We've got an interview with Ian McKinnon and Peter Saunders, otherwise known as McKinnon and Saunders, model makers extraordinaire. An interview with the directors of Frozen, Jennifer Lee and Chris Book. We've also got an interview with animation historian and all-round animation nice guy, Jerry Beck. And we've got a very special Christmassy treat for everyone. A legend in his own right. We've got a phone conversation with Mr. Richard Williams. My word. How's about that? That's one of the, uh, that's one of the biggest gets I think we have ever had. Ah, not only that. It is the third Oscar winner in a row that we've had on the podcast. Well, how do you like that? Sounds like a lot to look forward to. I hope you'll all enjoy it. So relax, whip up some eggnog or mulled wine or some other seasonal beverage, and uh, enjoy our final squiggly podcast of 2013. So, uh, 
so we had some fun in November, didn't we, Ben? We went up to Bradford for the uh, Bradford Animation Festival. And if you didn't get to go to Bradford, I thoroughly recommend that you listen to some little audio treats that Ben put together. Uh, we did some podcast minisodes uh, featuring Dave McKean, uh, Joanna Quinn, Michaela Pavlatova, and Adam Elliott. Pretty big, uh, big players in the industry. Though Dave McKean, not so much in terms of animation, but I think everyone knows who he is. He's a very good visual artist. Mm-hmm. It's interesting talking, listen to him talk about narrative, because I think in all the things that he does, whether it be kind of uh, animation, whether it be uh, mainly illustration and, and, and painting, and anything he puts his hand to artistically, it's all about narrative. It's all about him, you know, telling a story and his wise words can be kind of appreciated by animators i'm sure one of my favorites of his recently is a thing he did it's a book actually for children with richard dawkins this is the magic of reality or something yeah but yeah they were fun it was good to sort of do a more short form version of the podcast under different circumstances which unfortunately i don't imagine will present themselves anytime soon but it would be lovely to do something more regular, you know, something like a weekly thing, but they'd be uh, sort of shorter. But there isn't enough time in the day, unfortunately. Nope. Or enough council funding. Or any council funding. <laughs> or any any funding whatsoever. <laughs> That's the other, <laughs> the other point there. So um, until that glorious period, you're stuck with us roughly once a month, except for the months we don't do it. That's basically... All the weeks when we released five in a week, like we did yeah. for the uh, the Adam Elliott podcast, plus the four minisodes featuring Adam Elliott. That was nice catching up with him. That was a very nice interview to listen to as well. After talking to Barry Purvis on stage, that was one of the highlights for me. I thought that was a fantastic uh, chat. Well, I thought that was the absolute highlight, but then I'm not particularly impartial. I mean, it was very funny and very interesting and a lot of insight. I mean, some stuff that was in the interview in the podcast last month, but a lot of other stuff that was a lot more sort of personal and um, little sort of bits of anecdotal information. And then at times it was kind of sad. Hmm. I mean, there's a lot of conflict and there's a lot of stress in, in animated film production. And um, it's one thing, I think, of, of being exposed to someone's humility when they've achieved great success, as Adam Elliott has. But sometimes it went from humility to, like, really kind of, not depressing, but quite like, oh, geez, you know, the self-doubt and the self-picking away at one's own work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Barry Purvis is sort of a similar soul. He's done great things, but he's his harshest critic. And so you get the two of them on stage, and it's very funny, and it's very entertaining, and it's very insightful and interesting. But there were moments where they were also kind of reveling in one another's, like, self-loathing. <laughs> <laughs> well not self-loathing I'm sure they have a healthy attitude toward themselves but those dark periods I think that animators go to mm-hmm. and I think that's something that only comes with real success because I don't find it particularly familiar I, I certainly know what it's like to pick apart my own work and to want to keep working on a film until it's sort of bloodied and raw but I've never sort of had the thing of they were talking about the awards they'd won and how, you know, Adam Elliott would look at his awards cabinet and, and not feel what he'd expect to be feeling from looking at something like that. And Barry Purvis said that he'd at one point thrown a bunch of his awards away in like a fit of this is all BS kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that, all the audience are like, Ugh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've never had that moment because I've never had an awards cabinet full of awards. <laughs> I have a liquor cabinet that has a couple of awards 
tucked away behind the Abelauer. I think it's easy to think, isn't it? That, see, from from the audience point of view, that oh, if I won an Oscar, I I I build a, a, a special cabinet in the garden or something. You know, I I do this, I do that. But like, fascinating hearing that you know Barry smashed his stuff up. Uh, that Adam regards them. He said like wine. You know, he looks at them and thinks, oh, that was a good festival. Mm. That was a good time. That was a you know, and he regards them like that. So it's easy from the outside looking in, but I don't know, it's it's a unique perspective that both those uh, guys have, and we were quite lucky to uh, appreciate that while they were on stage. Definitely. As the mini-sode indicates, we did get some time with Adam Elliott. We want to bring it to you in some form or other. I'm forming a plan. We've got a lot of stuff on video as well. Uh, I've been working away at taking a bunch of the video footage that we've managed to get this year and finding the best way to present it to the squiggly lot. So uh, keep your eyes skinned for more from Adam Elliott and Michaela Pavlatova and all the other people we talked to, Joanna Quinn, Dave McKean. Should be good. I had a good time over there. Mm-hmm. Did you enjoy the quiz? It was wonderful. Well, we, yes, we did the, the squiggly quiz. I guess it's now been dubbed since... Is this the first year or the second year it's, it's become the... Well, seen as me and you were there, it's the squiggly quiz this year. Last year it was the, the BAFTA Hours pub quiz. But yeah, 80 people turned up. Who also turned up? were a big brass band. So as soon as I did the sound round, I was like, what's this TV series? And I play a theme tune. And all of a sudden, the brass band pipes up in <laughs> about 50 foot away from the quiz. Because <laughs> it was obviously children in need at the same night. and um, Which is really selfish of them. Extremely selfish of Those them. Those children mean, are so needy. Unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah, I quite like the brass band. It gave the whole thing a festive atmosphere. We should have asked the brass band to do like the Ren and Stimpy theme and uh, Batman the Animated Series and stuff like you know all the all the things that we were playing. But uh, yeah, that that it kind of worked. <laughs> Is it? I like the prize system we had set up where basically it's a table full of first come first serve. So you know the winning team you know is the first to get at the table, and so you know it was sort of funny. They descended on this table like jackals. <laughs> No coffee table books were left behind. Yeah. <laughs> so sort of gradually, the quality of the prizes got less and less enthralling until I think by the end, the last team got to pick from a delightful white squiggly badge <laughs> or a delightful blue squiggly badge, which was just kind of rubbing salt in the wound a bit, yeah. I suppose. But anyway, apart from that, good laugh. Really enjoyed it. And uh, we got to show the showcase again, mm-hmm. which is always nice to screen people's work. Although it was it was slightly more casual than when we did it in Bristol. It was more sort of on in the background, I suppose. And at one point, Michaela Pavlatova came over and, and asked me to turn the volume down. <laughs> <laughs> she gave me a good shushing. Put me in my place. <laughs> I was all shy. So when she did her talk, did you go up to her and say, excuse me, could you, uh, could you turn this down, please? <laughs> uh, one of the other things that were nice in the cafe, you mentioned it earlier on, was your chat with Joanna Quinn. I like. I really uh, enjoyed seeing how the the sting came together. And if you haven't seen the sting, if you want to go on to Squiggly, you'll find it there. It's basically Beryl's back. You know, Beryl, the character that Joanna Quinn's best known for, returns for the uh, for for Bath in its twentieth year. And uh, what a what a great piece of work that was. It was lovely. We also have some uh, behind the scenes footage of the the making of and the crew putting that together. It's just nice to see someone whose work you really enjoy, you know, do more. So keep your eyes open for that. One of the other special guests at this year's uh, Bradford Animation Festival were the recipients of the Lifetime Achievement Award. 
and that's uh, McKinnon and Saunders, Ian McKinnon and uh, Peter Saunders, who've been together for 20 years. Uh, the company has been together for 20 years. The guys have known each other from uh, way back when. Uh, they used to work together at Cosgrove Hall. And that was a really nice conversation that they had on stage with Paul Wells and the documentary A Model Studio, which was played beforehand. And I found that that was a really nice, cosy sort of setup because all the families came and all the people from the studio came to kind of enjoy the award being presented to them. What do you reckon to that? Did you see that then? Nope. <laughs> I, uh, I I had to, I was interviewing someone at the time. All oh, right. But I heard very good things. It's, it's shame Mr. Tim Burton couldn't have shown up in person, but nice that he had some pleasant things to say. That was a great surprise, a, a video message from Tim Burton, who's uh, frequently collaborated with McKinnon Saunders. I think it's probably fair to say we've, we've already interviewed uh, Peter Saunders in the Halloween podcast last year. Uh, but it was nice to get them both together because I think they round each other off perfectly. Obviously, they've been working together for so many years. They're incredibly modest. You know, they've got all this success, but they still kind of come across as if they could go out of business tomorrow or something. It's preserving that modesty, I think, is why people love working for them, I would say. There's a nice cosy kind of, um, well, as the documentary was called, a model studio. Uh, it is a, a a nice model of how, how you'd like an animation studio to be. Everyone in it together like a kind of family. Very nice. So just a little bit for those that don't know McKinnon Saunders, shame on you. A little bit about their past history and what they've actually worked on. Well, they did the puppets, basically, for Bob the Builder, uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, Corpse Bride, and recently Frankenweenie. And they've also created loads of other puppets for, like, TV, short film, advertisements. Uh, They also created the aliens in Mars Attacks. They created the big life-size ones used for the like the autopsy scene and the the military thing when things are going when you know when it's going mad at the in the military scene at the beginning mm-hmm. and they're all sort of stepping on the heads and the heads are exploding and things like that. Uh, they created all the kind of those effects. Um, and they were originally going to do like actual stop motion animation for the aliens, weren't they? Well, those sequences were originally going to be directed by Barry Purvis, but um, that's yeah, right, yeah, yeah. But unfortunately, there was a, a conversation where there's a part where one of the aliens hands over, I think it's a handbag or something, to one of the characters. And there was a big discussion. What colour is this handbag? What colour is this handbag? We don't know. We can't create this puppet without knowing, you know, what colour the handbag is. And I think somebody just said, why don't you just do it in CG? And then that was it. McKinnon and Saunders were kind of reassigned to create the the life-size props as opposed to creating the kind of uh, special effects. Now... I don't know about you, I love Mars Attacks. I think it's a great film. It's one of my favourite Tim Burton films. But I think that the film would have had a lot more stay if the special effects would have been shot in stop motion. I think it would have given it a lot more longevity. Although the CG in it now is good, that effect doesn't really pay homage to the films that the film is paying homage to. And if it had the kind of shaky kind of... Ray Harryhausen stop motion tactileness of it. It may well have been held in high regard today. Well, the thing is, the CG has dated, whereas the stop motion would have already been sort of dated in the sense that it is paying homage. So, by that virtue, it wouldn't have dated. Exactly. Yeah. It's already dated as much as it could do, and that's sort of part of the joy of it. Mm-hmm. It's like the um, the sandworms in Beetlejuice. 
Now, if you imagine those sequences with like whatever CG they had when that film was made, those sequences would look dreadful. Yeah, absolutely. You've n- hit the nail on the head. Those scenes are wonderful. Now they were already. It's as if they were already kind of like paying you know tribute to a, a much older type of film. But you don't look at that scene and go, "Oh God, that's so corny and dated." Now, it's it's what it is. And I think yeah, if they'd had that for Mars Attacks, it would have been. Um, I would probably have had more interest in it. I think. Because, again, it wasn't that long after Nightmare Before Christmas came out, right? Like, only a few years? I believe so, yeah. A couple of years after after Nightmare Before Christmas. Another highlight from Bath there, seeing seeing that up on the big screen again. I, I really enjoyed that. I think there's something about the, the work of uh, of stop-motion puppet makers that it's it's constantly fascinating. They're, 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 they're beautiful objects, aren't they? I mean, if you've ever seen uh, Barry walking around with his Tchaikovsky puppet, you know, he's got this bond with it. He's he's absolutely besotted by it. And I think the audience becomes a little bit besotted when they see Wallace or Gromit or, or other characters that aren't necessarily created by McKinnon Saunders but are still stop motion. The puppets for McKinnon Saunders are absolutely gorgeous. And they, I think they are probably the top of the line. I mean, when you look at Victor Van Dort and the, the mechanisms inside the puppets for the Corpse Bride that are used to create the, the mouth shapes, they aren't replacements that that head is like just a a mess of gears, just a load of gears and, yeah. and and levers and whatever, just used to sort of stretch this face out. And the same with Frankenweenie. I mean, during the interview, Victor Van Dort was there and Sparky was there, and there was also Fantastic Mr. Fox, uh, the Wes Anderson film, which McKinnon and Saunders worked on. Which goes the other way, really. I mean, Wes Anderson wanted a kind of rougher, you know, he wanted the fur to boil when when you see the film. Now, wasn't it also that film... I'm not sure, this was a couple of episodes ago, we had the O Willie guy, and they went over to McKinnon and Saunders and came back with a bunch of materials they were used from, like... That's right, yeah. So there's, like, stuff in O Willie that's actually, like, fox fur from Mr. Fox and, like, foliage and stuff like that. Yeah, well, earlier on, I was, you know, these guys, they had genuinely nice guys, and they will stop and help people out if they've got... They are a working studio. They're not some kind of untouchable director that you can't get hold of. If you were to ring McKinnon and Saunders up and say that you're making a stop-motion film and you need assistance, they would assist you. Hmm. I'm sort of offering the services there, but I'm sure they would. I'm going to jot that down for when I start yeah. my stop-motion film. You know, they are the top guys. And it was a pleasure uh, interviewing them. And Yeah, great interview, great guys. What more could you ask for? What more indeed? Only to hear the interview itself, huh? Yeah, yeah. Aha. So here's McKinnon and Saunders talking with Steve at the Bradford Animation Festival. So I'm here at the Bradford Animation Festival. We have Mr. Peter Saunders and Mr. Ian McKinnon. Of course, McKinnon and Saunders, joined by creations from their fabulous projects created for the likes of Wes Anderson and Tim Burton. But that's just a small fraction of everything that you guys do, isn't it? Yeah. Small parts. I know some of that. We've been very fortunate the last 20 years to, and I've worked with I know, a, a large number of, of di- directors and animators and uh, producers I know, sort of, you know, in TV and commercials and films. So, uh, um, I know, sort of, you know, a, a small selection of, uh, of the characters we've been involved with. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Can we, we sort of start by talking about your influences, uh, uh, both of you, um, from your uh, backgrounds growing up? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, I. I for, for me, uh, you know, it was things like Ray Harryhausen, who you know did all the, the fantastic dinosaur movies and uh, 
what have you, and Willis O'Brien, um, King Kong, you know, they, they were fabulous films, but there were also uh, films, smaller films like um, uh, Tom Thumb, where the, there was uh, little characters in there which were uh, animated and, uh, you know, intrigued me, even as a child, kind of intrigued me as to how those things had been done. And then kind of later on, uh, you know, to see some of the, uh, the Yuri Trinka films that were made in, in Czechoslovakia, you know, which um, sadly don't seem to be shown a great deal anymore, but they, you know, great style pieces and, uh, you know, beautifully crafted. And uh, so, you know, it was kind of fairly diverse, uh, you know, fairly diverse groups of, uh, of films, but, um, you know, they're, they're all, you know, very, um, Pertinent in their own, you know, they're only they're all great examples of their own particular type of, uh, you know, medium, I suppose. I like self Um Probably slightly earlier, much simpler. I know it's not earlier in ta- in time scale, but I know sort of, you know, I, you know, I think I started getting interested in puppets, you know, when I was watching all the preschool shows. I know sort of uh, Bagpuss and Campbellwick Green and Trumpton um, and those sort of you know those sort of shows the, the Herb Garden things like that were a nice of uh, you know I suddenly thought well, nice of you know the, something very magical about the sort of uh, the use of puppetry and sort of you know the, the, it was essentially looked like your toys had been brought to life um, and then even things like I know some of the Muppets and things again when I was at, when I was at school were sort of you know very sort of influential on the, my sort of desire to uh, learn how to how to make puppets. Brilliant. So, when you were both watching these shows uh, as as kids, as as young adults, were you watching them and thinking, "That's great animation," or were you watching them and thinking, "That's some great puppet making"? I'd like to figure out. Would you? Would you? Did you want to figure out how animation worked, or did you want to figure out how a puppet worked, how to bring a puppet to life? I think that's a, that's a really interesting question, and I think the the answer, as far as I'm concerned, anyways, is is that it was both. The, you know, you'd see. Uh, a Ray Harryhausen film, and you know, I don't know, uh, Jason interacting, you know, fighting the, the the skeletons, and you you think, well, I have absolutely no idea how that is done. You know, you, you know, you know that the the, the the skeletons have been created as models, but as to how the, the, those models have been created, and then how they've been, you know, how they've been animated, and and. Uh, uh, included with it, cooperated with the live action, you know, it was complete and utter mystery. So it was, you know, it was um, deeply baffling on, on all, all manner of levels. And, and it was just, you know, so it was kind of fascinating, not just in how he built those, those armatures. And of course, he was legendary for his um, secretive, secretiveness about how, uh, how he, he made his puppets and how he did his, his art. Um, so that kind of made it all more kind of compelling to try and find out, you know, how how is that process achieved? Mm-hmm. And even you know, so even the, the you know very early on, so you know, you recognise within the children's sort of programmes, you know, sort of like there were the materials there, sort of terry toweling on that was by nice sort of bits of fur fabric and things that you sort of you know. You, you knew that they existed. Yeah, they, I don't know. So, yeah, there's, a, there's probably a, a, an earlier connection to, to those sort of preschool shows where you sort of I know, think, well, that actually does look like a little bit like a ping pong ball or a bit of uh, fabric on it, sort of thing. So, yeah, I, I, you know, it's an easier, it's easier to sort of to imagine how 
you could you could make and manipulate something like that than it is to you know some of the, the I know the some more effects based you know sort of uh, the the feature film work the Harryhausen work which yeah just seemed totally I know so sort of baffling as to how that was done so uh, yeah so I think it was more sort of I know sort of the uh, the sort of the low tech sort of approach. Excellent. Well, um, McKinnon Saunders is twenty years old. Uh, let's go back to around 20 years ago um, where yourself worked on a film with, uh, with Paul Berry and uh, Colin Batty, The yeah. Sandman, yeah. a film which is still uh, just as relevant and entertaining and it, it seems that one of those films that doesn't age and I think the reason for that is because it keeps being the, the style, the, um, the, the, everything about the film is still being used today. You know, maybe more technical but you know everything from that from that initial spark has shaped uh, feature stop motion of the vast majority of it since then. Well, and, uh, and yeah, we were, we were looking at sort of you know, the influences of German expressionist sort of uh, know, sort of you know films, which you know, again is I know sort of, you know has influenced a lot of sort of uh, films over the years, and you know. They're just very sort of striking, you know, sort of Caligari, Nosferatu, you know, the sort of like the lighting and the sort of the, uh, the, the extremes, although they're sort of live action. I think, well, in animation, yes, you, you can push things, you know, as far as, far as, you, as you can. And um, it, I think it's relevant still today um, because, you know, everyone has a, you know, it's, it's universal, the story. Everyone has a bogeyman. Whatever country you come from, you know myths and tales and fairy tales, you know that exist, and there's always a you know dark bogeyman character, and having no language to it is, again makes it very universal. So uh, it still seems to find an audience and gets requested year in year out at the animation and you know live action that are horror festivals, um, and they sort of you know keeps going too. Um, so you're really pleased it, it still travels and uh, and it's and it's. Um, again, is part of uh, I know sort of uh, a teaching pack which the BFI use. Um, I know sort of in schools, um, and and then cause that introduces it to a new audience of uh, of, of I know sort of uh, you know young you know, school kids year in year out. So we're really sort of pleased that uh, we get lots of sort of uh, comments on YouTube about uh, the film and how it's sort of I know it's one of the most terrifying things that people have seen. Um, I think casey has got us in trouble because. And I guess played to a slightly too, you know, too younger audience, um, but uh, hopefully not on a regular basis. I think that's one of the, the issues with animation is that it's assumed to be for the kids, but it's got such a it's just a broader spectrum as, as film or, yeah. or yeah. theatre yeah. or yeah. Yeah. Should be, yeah. yeah. I think it's sort of you know, but I think people look at it sort of initially and sort of like think, oh, it looks like a sort of you know, a, a child storybook sort of, uh, I don't know, sort of you know, it, it, the characters are, I don't know, sort of you know, the. You, you, it, it doesn't. It doesn't look too sort of threatening, but I know sort of you know the, the underlying that and the sort of the sinister nature of it. It's sort of you know it's a bit of a there's a bit of a twist there. Um, you know, it ha- it did influence. I know sort of like the look of a whole series of commercials we worked on over a number of years. Um, I know sort of especially the, the little sort of the boy character in there, um, and I know there's just something very appealing about the designs, and that you know goes back to you know the. Character design and the guy that conceived the whole idea, Colin Batty, you know, really sort of talented sort of guy, and it's just it's a very simple sort of uh, I know form to the little boy character, but he works, he's appealing, and then sort of yeah, every every child sort of thinks, well, I know something, yeah, that could possibly be them going to bed at night, mm-hmm. and every creak 
sort of I don't know, sets them on edge. Uh, so uh, no, it's, we're sort of pleased it's uh, it's uh, it survived. Yes, but I think it's one of those um, you know rare circumstances that come along uh, you know once in a while where you know all the elements are, are good. You know, and I can speak objectively about this because uh, you know I, I wasn't involved with it, but you know I'm a great admirer. Uh, of it, and I think you know, as well as the great designer and the, the you know the beautiful puppets that, that Ian made for it, it's it's um, it's a really clever bit of uh, direction, a film direction, uh, you know, and it, and it's it's although it's a very simple story, you know, this the story is told very well, and there's very obviously a very climactic scene at the end, uh, and you know, for a short film to reach such a, a high dramatic climax. You know, is I think is you know down to good direction, and then also I mean you were very lucky in that you had Colin Towns do yeah. the, the music for it, which you know was brilliant. But music, you know, it's it's, it's uh, in some respects it's as iconic as as a um, psycho music in in the way that the the, the musical um, instruments are used uh, almost like sound effects. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's it's a yeah, a very powerful piece, and I think it's you know there was a lot of time and commitment that you put into that, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah and, and everyone it was it was done I know, purely in our spare time, and everyone that did get involved in it, you know, just gave their time sort of freely, sort of thing. So, uh, you know, it was uh, you know people say you know you need lots of money to make a make a film. I know, so you know, we had access to some equipment, which obviously uh, is the most you know, is, is incredible fortuitous. I know, so but. Uh, you know, we had actually no money to make the, make the film, so uh, it was just as we had spare time in the evenings and weekends that we'd put the thing together. <laughs> Brilliant. Time well spent, I will say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. So let's go back 20 years, 20 or so years, when you yeah. guys first met, and, and what what sort of drew yourselves towards each other, and why decide to create McKinnon and Saunders? Why not create McKinnon and somebody else, or Saunders and somebody else? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was force of circumstance. In a, when we... we been working as a company for, for 20 years but Ian and myself had been working together uh, at Cosgrove Hall um, the, the, the company based in Manchester who did um, Danger Mouse and, and The Wind in the Willows um, and we'd, we'd been working as puppet makers for that company uh, but that company unfortunately um, uh, had, a, had to lay all their staff off in 1992 and 1993 they did it in uh, two phases and um, so we were kind of faced with, um, you know, the situation of being out of work. And I think Cosgrove Hall, had it continued, you know, we would never, uh, well, maybe ne- not never, but I mean, with the chances are that we, we wouldn't have rushed into setting up the company because it was a very good company to work for. Um, but having lost our jobs, uh, it seemed uh, worth a punt. So um, in... in 1993 we, we established a partnership and then in 1995 uh, we, we uh, started a limited company um, you know and it's um, it's been very it's been been hard work and it's been very uh, stressful and un- unpredictable because you only get paid if you if you've got work in and uh, you do good work and people actually cough up the money for it um, but it's also been incredibly liberating because the, it's allowed us to work with a whole group of, of companies and directors who we would never have got the chance to work with had we had because we've all remained, um, you know, our employer. 
Because mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. when we were at Costco Hall, we only worked on Costco Hall projects. So, you know, the opportunity to work with um, you know, Tim Burton or to work on Bob the Builder or to work with Barry, uh, Barry Purvison or, you know, Wes Anderson or, or, or you know, all the different, different uh, companies we've had the, the great privilege to work with over the years. You know, that would never have presented itself, unfortunately. So it's it, it, it was um, it's it's kind of been yeah it's it's opened doors that we, we we kind of never could have imagined I think. Let's let's talk about those doors. Let's talk about the <laughs> the uh, well, the actual doors, but the um, the projects that came along. I mean, were there certain projects that came along where um, when, uh, when when the Bob the Builder people turned up and said. Uh, we'd like you to create the, the puppets for Bob the Builder. Did, was that like a, a, a big milestone? I mean, let's talk. I mean, let's talk milestones. When did you think we're making and Saunders? Still, uh, still trying to figure that one out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, I think you know, you know, they, it, a lot of the projects. They, they sometimes they come to us, you know, quite early stages, and you know, they might not actually happen for another two, three years, or you know, sort of even longer. You know, we've. You know, some of the TV series, they take a long time to finance, so, you know, it's sort of, you know, you, you, you're waiting for, for the go-ahead on something, and you think it's gone away, a couple of years later it comes back. Mm-hmm. Um, with Bomb Builder, it happened sort of pretty quickly, I know, sort of, uh, you know, sort of, uh, it had been going around, I know, so sort of they'd done various pilots for the show, and then uh, they came up to uh, Jackie Cocklett's sort of hot animation, um, uh, and I know, sort of, you know, Keith Chapman had uh, and I sort of come up with the the, the concept and the, the the idea for Bob, and uh, and I sort of they 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 would then work together on the development of the show, um, and then and I sort of a good friend of ours, Curtis Jobling, I know the designer came on board, and I sort of uh, and you know it just it, it just seemed to to all work, and I sort of so well together, and it, you know who knows why, and I sort of you know one show is more success, successful than another, but. Uh, you know, up until then, we were always saying to people, and they sort of, well, we do work a little bit like Wallace and Gromit, you know, because I know everyone knew some of the shows, but I know, sort of, you know, I think when we got to working on Bob the Builder, suddenly you could say, oh, we work on Bob the Builder, and everybody knew what the show was about. So it was a bit of a milestone for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then I know, sort of, you know, completely out of the blue, I know, sort of a phone call on Tuesday afternoon saying I know would you come to New York and meet Tim Burton to talk about a project and you know a week or so later we're in New York talking about Mars Attacks you know wow. and a couple of weeks later we've got a, I know, a little team of, of uh, I know sort of sculptors over in Los Angeles and we're, we're starting work on the film you know so you know it can happen as quickly as that and that sort of you know again changed the fortunes of the company from being five or six of us and I sort of working on a variety of projects, you know, so suddenly it was 45 of us in Manchester and another 10, 15 of us in Los Angeles. So, uh, and I sort of, and, you know, within a matter of weeks, that sort of, uh, that whole thing kicked off. Brilliant. I do like, sorry. Sorry, I was just going to say about um, uh, Mars Attacks is that uh, at the time we used to employ a, a really talented young sculptor called Darren Marshall. And, um, Darren was kind of notorious for, for ringing people up and, and making spoof telephone calls to them uh, and recording them. And um, so when we got this phone call from uh, Laurie... Sorry, Parker, Laurie Tim Parker, Burns, producer. Yeah, 
she uh, she she phoned up and said, "Hi, you know, I'm, I'm from a Tim Burns producer." And we thought it was he just got one of his his uh, friends to to ring up and, and wind us up. So we were like, "Yeah, right, yeah, 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 yeah." And and um, you know, it really got to the point of saying, look, it nearly got to the point where we said, uh, "Darren, you know, I, we know you must be a friend of Darren's because you know Tim Burton's not going to ring us up." I said, uh, guys, no, this is uh, this is Laurie Parker. I'm phoning, and Tim wants to meet you at the Carlisle in New York, and what have you. And and then it, it slowly kind of dawned on us that this 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 wasn't a wind up call at all. It was the real deal, and it's like, oh uh, yeah, all right, yeah, okay, we'll be there, you know. <laughs> but it, it very nearly ended in disaster. Wow. Uh, <laughs> uh, but you know, I think it was just the kind of penny drop, just at the just at the very last minute. Otherwise. Uh, uh, you know, we might not be sitting here today. Yeah, you know. perhaps your relaxed demeanour beforehand, knowing that it was Darren. Yeah. Perhaps you all Darren quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we got yeah, we, we got our own back, as I know. So about three or four weeks later, Darren was on an airplane going to Los Angeles, and I think it was about the first time he'd been on an airplane, and he was about out of the country. So uh, we dragged him over with us to uh, to Los Angeles Brilliant. to work on the show. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so my next question for you is what, what is it like working with, with Tim Burton and, and Wes Anderson and things like this I mean obviously it's great getting the phone call but is it a different relationship to well, know, the two guys they're, they're both very uh, different although the, you know one thing one common denominator is that they're, you know, they're both really enthusiastic um, I think uh, you know the, Tim, Tim is great and one of the things that perhaps may surprise a lot of um, people. You know, they tend to sort of think it, that he's, he does these very kind of noir films, um, a kind of gothic uh, thing. But he's actually a very, very funny person. And, um, you know, it's always delight working with him because not only is he, uh, you know, very enthusiastic about what he does, you know, he really, on, on the occasions he's been up to uh, the, the workshops in Manchester, you know, by the time he's left, everybody's absolutely buzzing with enthusiasm, and he's a real inspiration as well. Yeah, and it, you know, his films, I know, people say his films are dark, but I know they're full of, I know, sort of real emotion and sort of humanity, and they're, they're very, I know, sort of, yeah, and incredibly funny. Yeah, I think that's why, I know, sort of, you know, none of, I know, you know, he's, he's, you know, you can have a character that's, uh, I know, sort of, you know, one of the first characters that, I know, sort of, you know, from. Yeah, well, the first sketches we saw from Corpse Brian, yeah, it's a dead dog with a with a knife in its back. But I know the way it was drawn and the sort of I know some, you know, it was an appealing character and it was it was cute and it was called cute dog with knife in back. And <laughs> I know some, yeah, and only Tim could get away with that. It's no, there was nothing repulsive about it or horrific and I know some, uh, so you know he has got a great sense of humour and he's very he's he's really good with the and I think he appreciates the artist, the team of artists that work on his films and uh, I know some, you know, and he really likes to chat to them about what they're doing and how the process of the puppets being made and um, working with, we've worked with two fantastic sculptors, I know, we've worked with many sculptors but I know some, two that I know really stand out, I know some, you know, Noel Baker and, and Joe Holman and uh, they, I know some, you know, on, on, on and Weenie, you know, Tim said, I, you know, I want to work with you guys, I want to work directly you know, with the sculptors and Noel and Joe, and they sort of, you know, it was a really fantastic sort of uh, match. You know, they would, and they sort of, you know, he'd do a quick sketch and they'd do a quick maquette, and very collaborative. And comments would go back and forth very easily. And uh, and they sort of, you know, he's very he's a very easy guy to work with, and especially because he draws as well. He's a, he's a fantastic artist. So if he can't explain what he wants 
vis- you know, visual sort of, you know, sort of a little reference will come out so very quickly. And uh, so, you know, we've been very fortunate to work with him on sort of three projects now and a couple of other sorts of, I know, sort of uh, smaller sort of, uh, sort of projects for the, for, the, for the Museum Modern Art show that he did. Um, and it's just an absolute joy to, to get to work with him. Brilliant. And I think, you know, you're asking about uh, Wes Anderson. I think he's, um, he comes at it from a slightly different angle. He's, um, I think when uh, he was uh, doing Fantastic Mr. Fox, he's perhaps less knowledgeable about the, the, the techniques of stop frame animation uh, than, than Tim is. But he, he, he was a very clear idea of, of what he wanted to achieve. And uh, we, we met him. Uh, for an initial meeting, probably about a year before we actually started working on the film, and the, he gave a very brief description about uh, how he saw the, the puppets for Fantastic Mr. Fox. He said, "You know, I want these characters to look like um, stuffed animals that have come to life," and um, you know, and the in in we 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 kind of we were a little bit lost when we first started working on the, 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 the film because we thought well, we can't really mean that um, you know perhaps he wants this on that, that or the other but when we, uh, when we eventually got the, the puppets kind of approved uh, to, to uh, you know to, to what he was wanting you know it turned out that it was as simple as that we wanted puppets that looked like um, stuffed animals that have come to life and you know, so he's, I think he's, he's got a, a very clear, clear vision and he, he kind of pushed us to do things uh, that we wouldn't normally do. You know, we might, he'd say, I just want you know, fur, I want them to have real fur, I don't want it sculpted fur, I don't want it stylized, uh, it's got to look. And we say, well, it's, it'll, it'll crawl, it'll, it'll it look like it's rustling all the time as the animators handle it frame by frame. It doesn't matter. It'll give it life, and you know. I knew you watched the film. We went to see it um, down in London on the, the first screening of it, and we were terrified that you know this uh, Mr. Fox would just be this blur of, of crawling fur. Uh, and in actual fact, you don't really notice it do you? after the first few minutes. You just get, you know, he's a great scriptwriter uh, and a great director. Very different from Tim um, in in his approach to. Um, Filmmaking and direction, but it but it, it it kind of worked because he was trying to do something you know very kind of retro, but but in in its own way quite groundbreaking. Yeah, they both yeah they both both uh, both um, like, yeah appreciate the handcrafted quality too. You know they want to celebrate stop motion. They don't want to hide behind. They don't want it to to feel like a computer generated image. They want the, the audience to know. That I know, you know, fingers have touched that puppet, and hands have made have made those those costumes. I know, so, so you know, that's you know, they, they they share that sort of same love of the stop motion uh, art form. I think that's an appeal that stop motion has and puppetry has that will never be replaced by any other medium, and the sole reason why it will probably always be around. I hope I think so. so. I hope you're right. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's difficult to say. Yeah. But but you know it, it is it's, it's a lovely thing to be involved with and uh, it is the uh, tactility of the, of the, the puppets and, and actually the, the, the tactility of uh, creating the puppets which is something that we really enjoy you know the, the fact that this is a, 
real micro code drawing. Goodness knows where we got that from. Where did we get that from? I don't know, we, we were sent a pair of Wes Anson's trousers across from Paris, I know, sort of to, uh, to try and match the right colour. So, uh, I know, so, which we were very careful with, I know, so, and uh, yeah, we didn't cut any, any swatches out of them, but uh, I know. You so, did ask for them back, by the way. Yes. Right, okay, <laughs> we did send them. So, uh, I've got an Im- image of him now, like, sat there with his, you know, just his underpants and his shirt on, thinking, why are my trousers? <laughs> I'll tell you what, they'd be very nice underpants, though, in ways. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, is, along the career that you've both had, um, with film, television, commercials. Yeah. Um, are there any particular feats of engineering, micro-engineering, that you've been <laughs> particularly proud of throughout uh, any of your uh, creations in the past commissions? I, I know. I think. You know, the, the, I think it's Pete's baby. I know. So sort of has been the, the sort of the the, the, the the facial mechanics for the uh, I know. Sort of the Corpse Bride puppets. Yeah. You know, they're sort of like the miniaturising. I know, sort of uh, the the mechanics. You know, I think you know the the work that, that Pete and the sort of the team did on that was just you know absolutely fantastic, and uh, you know they really sort of carry you know great performances. You know they've got sort of you know sort of wonderful voice artists, and you've got to sort of uh, create I know a tool which the animators can can get that level of expression out of it, and it's uh, it wasn't easy. <laughs> Well, the, the, the crazy thing is, is, is that we didn't want to do them like that. The, uh, there's a bit of a history to that. I'll try and be as, as succinct as I can. But um, we worked on a film, at Cosgrove Hall, or a, like a TV special uh, called The Fool of the World and His Flying Ship. And the, we tried out these mechanics uh, in the main character, Piotr. 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 Yeah. And. Um, uh, so, and that had all kind of little gear mechanisms in it uh, and it was a disaster but it kind of didn't affect me because I'd taken a year's sabbatical after making this puppet and left Ian and, and the team to uh, to try and maintain it and um, you know I, I nearly got lynched when I, I came back after the, the, the year off they said you know that puppet you made um, nightmare kept on breaking and the skin kept on breaking so um, so when uh, when we were approached to the, the, the Corpse Bride and, and we were, um, Mike Johnson said, I, I love the film, the, 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 the Fool of the World and the Flying Ship. Can you make all the heads like you did the Peter character? Uh, we said, no, <laughs> it's, it's, it will be a disaster of unparalleled proportions. Um, but at the producer at the time, who was a, an ex-American football player, uh, was not somebody that you um, argued with. And he said, uh, I think you will make the puppets like my ass. And, um, and we said, all right, OK, we'll do that. Um, but we, you know, I think we'd, we'd seen it. We, we knew the, the, the logistical problems of trying to maintain uh, one of these fancy heads. Um, we knew the time it took, you know, the, the very time-consuming. And we knew the limitations to them as well. But you can't do the kind of big mouth gestures that you can say like with replacement heads uh, and so we felt there were so many drawbacks to, to using this particular technique that we you know we dug us dug our heels in as much as we could but they they, they said well, you know if you're working on this film this is the way we want it done and um, and, and that's the way it ended up so yeah we produced I know so if, uh, Mike Johnson insisted that I know so we, we, we pursued it and uh, Pete created a little prototype version for it and uh, Mike animated it himself and did a really lovely sort of animation test with it. And 
He said, yeah, I'm happy with that. And that's, and so, yeah, it was actually fine. Yeah, very often on any job, it's, it's, it's the early stages trying to find out what an animation director or the director or producer want. You know, you sort of, uh, it takes a while to sort of, you know, to, 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 to realise what their, their aspirations are for the show. And, uh, and they sort of, and some come easier than others. But I'm, 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 you know, I'm happy to acknowledge that he was right and I was wrong. And, um, you know, I think that... Uh, it works really well, and I think he, you know, he's a, uh, a very talented guy, and uh, he, he must have seen, must have had some sort of vision about how these things could work, which I don't think I had. I was just kind of frightened by the whole scenario. Um, but but uh, you know, you look at the film, and, and I think with the performance of the animators got out was, um, you know, it's a lot. It's a lot more refined than, say, had it been done with replacement uh, animation at the time. I mean, nowadays with uh, the, the films that Leica are doing, um, where they're using rapid prototyping and, and very refined CG, you know, you can get incredibly nuanced performances with replacement heads. But at the, uh, the time, back in what was it, 2001, 2002, you know, we'd have had to sculpt hundreds, if not thousands, of heads to get that. that of nuancing so um, no good on Mike yes but, uh, good decision on his part brilliant final question 20 years later um, what's the next 20 years going to be like god I know so I think the last 20 years taught us not to actually try and plan anything too far ahead I know so yeah because we yeah we've we, you never know there's never we can never predict what work's going to come in um We've had a really good, a good spell of work the last couple of years. Our nice of uh, it's, our nice, and at the moment we've got our nice of you know we've got another project that's going into the the model studio, um, which will start shooting um, in January time, um, and working with some really I know collaborating with some new people on that, which is very exciting. Um, we've got um, a new project that we've just started, which is our first sort of in-house digital project. We set up a digital studio, which uh, opened. I know really at the beginning I know started uh, I know 16 sort of uh, new animators started on that on Monday this week so that's a new venture for us um, and then we'll see, yeah we'll take those two productions and then see how it goes after that I know you know there's other projects you know that we've been talking to I know directors for a while um, which I know sort of you know hopefully uh, will come to fruition but uh, you know, enjoy, enjoy it, uh, you know, each day as it comes. Really, excellent. You know, and I think you know. It also has to be said that the, um, you know, really important thing for Ian and myself are, are the people who work for us. And, and if we could, you know, if we could have the, the you know, the same group of people around us, um, you know, for the next twenty years, I think we'd be incredibly happy people because you know we're, we're supported by, you know, a really diverse and talented group of people you know both you know some some have been with us for, for uh, you know since the since we started 20 years ago some have, have joined us within you know the recent years but they're, you know, they're all as, as precious to us as, as each other and, and uh, you know they you know, it makes going into work every day a pleasure doesn't it, it does so uh, if we can continue to work with these people in some respects, it doesn't matter what the projects are. We get to work with these people and continue to work with them. And we'll be very uh, lucky people indeed. Excellent. Well, congratulations again on your uh, 20 years working together. Thank you. And for your award, the Lifetime Achievement Award. Yeah.
here at Bradford Animation Festival. Thank you. Ian McKinnon, Peter Saunders, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. much. So that was McKinnon and Saunders talking to Steve at the Bradford Animation Festival, the master craftsman of stop motion puppetry in the UK, I would say. I would agree. Another coup for the podcast, if I may be so bold. We do get to talk to some pretty cool people, I have to say. Yeah. It's nice to be able to share that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, it would be kind of counterproductive to go out and interview all these people and then just never play it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So getting from that interview that the uh, studio is expanding, what uh, what do you think we can expect from McKinnon and Saunders in the future? Well, they've recently gone into production on some more 2D projects. They made um, Frankenstein's Cat a couple of years ago. Did you see that, the 2D flash thing? Uh, I know people who worked on it. I didn't watch. I've seen, like, clips of it, but I... Yeah, you shouldn't admit if you know people and you haven't seen it. Because you're friends with them, I believe that that means that you have to watch everything that your friends do, and then you've got to uh, shower them with with accolades afterwards. Oh, great. I have a lot of corporate videos and NHS commercials to watch then. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they they created Frankenstein's Cat, or put together the the Curtis Joblin book uh, as an animated series, and now they're going to be doing some more 2D work. Uh, so it's nice to see how kind of diverse they are for a model-making studio to be creating 2D series and um, and a model series by the sound of what Ian said there. So, yeah, big future ahead. You know, let's see what the next 20 years brings. So next up we have an interview with one of my favourite animation historians, a guy who has written plenty of books on the medium, and uh, has been for quite a long time one half of the major cartoon website, Cartoon Brew. Uh, I think he actually uh, co-founded it. Yeah, co-founded it with uh, Amidi Midi. But before then, he ran cartoonresearch.com, which he's gone back to after 10 years with Cartoon Brew. And Animation Scoop, another website which he runs. He's diversified. He certainly is, yes. Cartoon research, obviously, uh, is kind of research dedicated to the kind of classic cartoons. He really sort of delves into the kind of Warners, Disney's, all the old stuff like that. It's not the extent of his knowledge, obviously. It was modern work as well. I think he recently released a book on SpongeBob, mm. about 20 years of SpongeBob SquarePants. And obviously, Animation Scoop is more about the news, about the kind of trailers that have been released and promotional bits and pieces. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any of his books, like the SpongeBob one or... I haven't got the Spongebob one. It's on my Christmas list. Have you got many of his books? I have a few, yeah. It's sort of a mix of... I mean, some of them are kind of cultural analyses, and then some of them are very much tied in with specific properties. Mm -hmm. He's in the trenches of the industry. And, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, he wrote a very good book on uh, the Spike and Mike festivals, or the sort of content that would be programmed into them, called Outlaw Animation. Recently put out a little sort of hardback book going through the uh, the 100 best or the 100 most highly considered uh, Looney Tunes cartoons called the 100 greatest Looney Tunes cartoons, which is how I should have described it, really. I'm not sure why I chose to <laughs> rephrase that to make myself seem more insightful. That's a lovely book. I imagine it would be quite hard to pick 100 best. Yeah, I'd, I'd, be, I'd get lost. I don't even know if I could pick a top 10, because you'd pick a top 10 and then somebody would say, well, what about this film? What about that film? You'd be like, oh, God. Yeah, I forgot all about that one. So it, it kind of takes a, a real brain to put this kind of thing together, a considered perspective of the kind of Looney Tunes back catalogue. I think that was kind of a collaborative effort. I think actually he he edited that one. Hmm. 
I know that Thad Komarowski, who we had on the podcast earlier in the year, I think he was involved in that book in some way or other. Mm. And Thad, in a way, is kind of a protege or a, or a Jerry Beck in the making in a lot of respects. He has his own blog as well. He's a much younger guy, but he's very sort of interested in the, the preservation of animation. You know, he's a collector of original reels and things like that. And he's, he's it's nice to sort of see that animation is still quite highly regarded, to, that there are historians. I find it incredibly refreshing that there are people out there like Jerry Beck promoting the past, looking after old, old artifacts and things like that. Well, in some respects, like yourself as well. Well, it was just going to get on to talking about myself because I'm very self-centered. I know, I, I thought I'd crowbar that in <laughs> and consider it like that. But yeah, working with Paul Wells, who's, I would say he's probably the UK's Jerry Beck. I think that's probably fair. Somebody who kind of promotes and, and, and aims to kind of preserve animation. You know, he's always like the talking head that people go to when they need somebody to discuss cartoons, if they need somebody to discuss Warner Brothers, Looney Tunes, Hanna-Barbera. It's always Jerry, in the US at least. Uh, and the UK, it's Paul. But um, people like Jerry are kind of keeping this going, you know, keeping people interested in Looney Tunes. Definitely. It saddens me when you see animation auctions this is going on personally because I, I kind of look after an archive, but the idea that these sort of collections and these old cells and things like that are getting split up because what's guaranteeing the safety of such an artifact? What's guaranteeing if you've got a, a reel, if it lands in the hands of somebody like Jerry or if it lands in the hands of somebody like Thad Komarowski, then you know it's going to be looked after. He's probably going to put it on some kind of exhibition or he's going to showcase it on his blog. He's going to share it with everyone. But if it goes into the hands of somebody who, who doesn't really have the kind of future of that artifact in mind, I think that's dangerous kind of territory. Mm. Yeah. One of the things we discuss a bit, and it kind of bums me out as well, is the demise of the home video market, which we're sort of, it hasn't completely ended, but we're watching it die. It's a bit sort of sad to see. We know the way it's going. I mean, think of the state of all the sort of DVD stores and everything and how they're dwindling nowadays, even Blu-ray. There's anything with sort of like physical media just seems to be kind of dying on the vine. And in a way, that's good. Like, you know, people can enjoy shows and they can enjoy films in a way that doesn't rely on having, you know, shelves full of boxes of things. But some of us like the shelves full of boxes of things. Yeah. You know, it's just sort of on the heels of the culture of digital music and, you know, the parallel thing of people just being able to steal content really easily. The effect that that has had on studios being interested in releasing collections of old animation, well-preserved animation in their original form or in a way that's presentable, you know, to the public nowadays. It seems like they're not sure where to go with that. Whereas 10 years ago or so, there were these wonderful Looney Tunes collections released. There were some unfortunate omissions, but as a set, it's wonderful, and it's a great way to sort of have a whole bunch of really, really good animation together as one DVD set. I'm pretty sure Jerry Beck had a, a hand in that. But it's like, well, now DVDs are kind of going away. What's the future version of that? Ideally, we'd be able to just sort of purchase stuff as, you know, downloadable content, but it seems like there are so many issues in the way of that. So many, like, preventative measures that need to be taken to, you know, ward off piracy and, and things like that. And it's just, it's so hard to gauge what the next, like, medium for being able to keep cartoons or keep films is going to be. Yeah. You do know that, obviously, while people have created videotapes and, and DVDs, 
and digital files, that the only thing that is guaranteed by any kind of preservation is 35 millimeter film. The only things that are guaranteed that, that can still be played and always be played are always these original 35 mils. Everything else past is just has got a, a shelf life. It's, it's a pretty odd kind of world where we think we, we're sort of galloping away into the future, but you know, back in the past. There's a, there's a thing that's always worked. One of the things that Thad has mentioned online is that he actually owns 35mm prints of certain rare films that he has offered studios who are producing DVD collections, please don't use this horrible digital version of a film for your source material. I have the film. <laughs> you, can, you can use it for your DVD, and they won't take it. Wow. Because of the effort involved or something. If he listens to this and I got that wrong, let me know. But I'm, I'm pretty sure that was the case. People seem to shy away from effort. And another thing that happens nowadays, which I was sort of aware of, but I, I seeing it on like a sort of a website where it was sort of reviewing a Disney film. I think it was the um, Disney A Christmas Carol. Yeah. And that's been released, I think, on Blu-ray. They were able to take the original film transfer that was used for the DVD or Blu-ray menu, okay? And that has a clip from the film playing on a loop, right? Then they take the actual bit from that film when you press play and watch the whole film, and they compared it. And they've done something to the actual film, this uh, digital process, that cleans everything up. It makes an old Disney film look like a Flash cartoon. Mm. The lines are really thick, bold, and the colors are really flat. I mean, it doesn't ruin the cartoon, but it does take something away, because it, it takes away all the film grain. Yeah. And it's like film grain... The natural film grain you get from 35mm film is regarded, I guess, but as an imperfection. That's nuts. Yeah. The reason, I think, that people... Because it's so expensive to get a film transferred to 35mm. The reason any filmmakers I know that do it, one of the main reasons is they love how professional it makes their film look. Because it gives it that grain. Yeah. It gives it that film look. There are plugins for you know digital softwares like after effects where you can artificially add film grain to make it look classier <laughs> yeah do you have friends who kind of like instagram and put pictures on facebook when their film ends up being in a can and they're like hey it's like their proudest moment is actually getting their film in a can it might have been made digitally it might be made on a mac or a pc but when it's in when it's on actual film and it's ready to be shipped off to a festival they're like hey look at this you don't quite get that same thrill when you're looking at your film on a digi-beta tape. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I'm sure it must have died out now, but when I first started releasing films to festivals in, I guess, 2008, 2009, up until about 2011, all festivals wanted your film on digi-beta, which is an SD format, as far as I can tell. It looks horrible. Mm -hmm. It's basically like a little crappy videotape. But I don't know, like, it was just the only thing that these cinemas or whatever seemed sort of equipped to project apart from actual film so that's one of the things i'm thankful for everything going digital for i don't have to take my film to you know the post-production place down the street get it transferred again was that just as, as a screener did they just want the s uh, the sd format just to watch it in like a screening room and then ask for like a 35 mil print to screen no they'd they'd want the they would either watch it on online or they'd ask you to send a dvd ah. when you're applying to have a film in a festival i think now it's mostly online yeah and then for the actual festival they'd want it on the special tape they kind of look like betamax tapes mm -hmm. 
like not quite VHS and a little sort of shorter and squatter. But you know, you'd, you'd make a film in HD. That's how you would like it to be seen in a cinema, ideally. And you know, I mean, Jesus, we did a screening, you know, a couple months ago in a bar, and that was HD. We just ran it from a laptop. Mm-hmm. It was way better in terms of crispness and quality. Surely someone at the at this festival in 2010 had a laptop they could have just run the film from. <laughs> anyway, so yes, video. I'm I'm not too sad to see go film. It's a whole nother thing. It's it's where it all began, and you're right. It doesn't. It can always be relied on. Yeah, I think something that we're missing when we when DVD and Blu-ray dies out as well is commentary. You know the the sort of DVD commentaries and things like that, and the extras and the, and things. Mm. When you download something on on iTunes, I know you can get extras and bits and pieces. I don't think you can get copies with audio commentary. I fear that that kind of thing will die out. I'm sure they they'd work out a way of doing that. You could just switch the audio channel. Yeah, there's one format. I think it's MKV that you can sort of switch from audio channels, and that's good if you have something on DVD that you want to sort of burn into a digital file for completely legitimate purposes. Obviously, you wouldn't do this with a commercial DVD. I wouldn't endorse such such heinous activity. But maybe if they, they were able to come up with a file format that accommodated all the same things that Blu-ray and DVD did while somehow remaining, you know, copyright protected or something to kind of prevent online thievery or the like. Because I guess that's just their major concern now. It's just that's really sort of punched the industry in the gut you know, music and film. Mm-hmm. One of the things I'm sure, you know, in the future, people like Jerry Beck will help uh, facilitate. But uh, in the meantime, let's have a little chat with him, see what he's been up to. Jerry Beck, great to talk to you. Uh, I gather you're a very, very busy fellow. Can you tell us a bit about what you're up to at the moment? Well, I just worked on um, one of those art of books for the upcoming DreamWorks Mr. Peabody and Sherman movie and uh, just finished that this past week and uh, been working on my two blogs. I have two blogs that I maintain daily, cartoonresearch.com. Uh, every day uh, there's a, a post of some sort, whether it's by me or my little team of esteemed colleagues who I have working uh, on it. And uh, it's kind of a communal effort and I'm very proud of that. I'm also doing Animation Scoop, which is not Cartoon Brew. I want to make that very, very clear. Cartoon Brew uh, still goes on with uh, Amida Meaty, and he's doing a great job. And Animation Scoop is mainly a Hollywood TV and movie industry, sort of a news site. You know, uh, it's just a place to get the new trailers and uh, clips and interviews with people making the films. It's very friendly. It's very artist friendly, but we're not we're not really premiering new films and short films and a lot of the stuff that Cartoon Brew do. It. I I want to make that clear. I'm looking around to see what else I do. I teach animation history here in California, amongst many many other things. So with all that stuff going on, is there any such thing as like an average day in the life of Jerry <laughs> Beck, or does it change from day to day? Uh, one day I'm running down to uh, interview a. Uh, uh, a studio, a producer, a director at an animation studio, because I'm going to be doing some online video in that regard uh, soon. Some other days I'm writing, writing those blog posts. I mean, I forget how many things I do. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm still a consultant to Warner Brothers Home Video, working on many, many projects with them. It's a lot less than it was a few years ago. A few years ago when we were doing the Popeye sets and DVD and Looney Tunes, Golden Collections mm-hmm. and things like that. That was a high point, and unfortunately, the DVD sales are now pretty low, so I don't think everybody's figured out yet how to 
put the library online or make it available digitally. I mean, they are working on that, uh-huh. but uh, there are still DVDs that they're putting out. I'm involved with some of those. I'm involved with some other DVD projects unrelated to Warner Brothers. I'm involved with the Puppetoon movie, which is the old George Powell Puppetoons from the 1940s. And that's a spectacular Blu-ray set loaded with bonus material about George Powell, extra features, at least six or seven or maybe more bonus Puppetoon cartoons uh, that, that were sub-licensed from, from Paramount making their debut on, on video here. So just spectacular stuff. I'm also working, there's going to be a Mr. Magoo set, which actually my work on that was done a long, long time ago. It was a, a shout factory here was going to put that out but it's upa's uh, theatrical mr magoo cartoons and uh, beautifully restored um i don't know have you seen the um uh, do you keep up with this uh, the, the, there was the jolly frolics collection that that tcm put out here in the states uh-huh. this is sort of the other half of that library the one with the more famous character mr magoo and i'm very excited about that said i'm hoping it'll come out this year at worst i think it'll come out next year for sure because it's it's literally sitting on a shelf and because of the market the studio doesn't know when to release that. I admit in my elder age mm-hmm. that I'm 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 living the life that forty years ago I, I would have dreamed I, I could live. I wanted to be an animator. I wanted to I was an artist in high school and I wanted I went into trying to be an animator, but forty years ago there was no business like it is today in animation. And so I moved into the movie industry. Luckily that was a complete fluke. Uh, but it was, I loved movies in general yeah. and uh, my love of movies, my love of animation. I love it. It's totally what I want to do. It is a sort of interesting thing to think that there is, I mean, well, it's encouraging to think that there's still a lot of uh, enthusiasm out there, not just people who animate, but people who are you know fans of animation, that there is that sort of interest in the cultural history of animation and um, something that uh, on the subject of like supervising those kind of collections and releasing those, I think my first exposure to you and, and your work was a documentary they showed in England uh, a very long time ago. I was still in school, and it was on a, a certain group of uh, animation, or a segment of it was on a certain group of animations that have not really stood the test of time in terms of social content. A lot of antiquated stereotypes and things like that. Yeah. Uh, the wartime era cartoons in particular. Some of them you see bootlegs occasionally, and they are in a technical sense, quite artistically valuable. And it's almost a shame that they'll never really be seen, you know, in a sort of mainstream way. And do you think there'd be any way of, of, of putting stuff like that out in, in a context that the general public would be okay with? Well, maybe not the general public, but I, mm. I do think that we have more access. I have more hope that that material will be made available mainly because of the the internet and because of the way that people can get material today i mean back 10 20 years ago we only had certain outlets you know uh, 30 40 years ago we just had uh television you know uh that was it movies and then tv and maybe there'd be an eight millimeter you know uh, i have a little you know there's a chimps vacation but there'd be a little eight millimeter home movie of a movie and that would be in silent it would be a silent black and white of a color cartoon that would be the only way you'd be able to uh, see these animations. And uh, the broadcasters, you know, about 30 years ago, you know, realized that there was certain content that was now dated. It, it, it wouldn't play today. It would be offending to some people now. So they removed it because mainly the perception is that animation is for children. So since being responsible broadcasters, they removed this material. As we 
get older and as we understand and want to know social history and cartoon history and all of this, you know, people like you and I want to see this material and have access to it. Uh, the good news is because of DVD, cable channels, uh, the internet, there are more what I call niche outlets that are appropriate for this kind of material to be made available and to be screened at, at worst for educational purposes. We should not forget our past as if it's bad and if it's horrible, we need to remind ourselves of that. We, it's, it's not like we're not going to foist upon everybody and show people how racist we used to be, but, but it's important that it not be completely burned and destroyed. And it's like, it's like Holocaust deniers, you know, it's like, we're not going to deny that these things happened and we'll learn from that on another level as people who are fans of animation, there's some actual great animation. There's some great things on the soundtracks of a lot of these cartoons that have been banned for years. This, this material should not be lost. It's, it's, and it's mainly lost because it's perceived by the companies and the general public as children's material. Mm-hmm. That's the big problem. This is why they still show uncut Marx Brothers movies, you know, uh, Andy Hardy movies on TCM on cable here. And uh, they're uncut and have all these racial things in them. Mm-hmm. But they're considered, they're live action. They're, people understand that they're old movies. The problem with animation is it doesn't date, meaning an old cartoon restored looks like it was made yesterday. It doesn't look like it's an old film. It looks like a new film. It looks like Bugs Bunny is really insulting the Japanese, yeah. you know, in this particular cartoon. So it's it's a careful line. There's a lot of people who understand that. And we're winning. I mean, right now we're not, but we're, we're generally winning. Uh-huh. You know, Disney has put out most of its formally banned material. I mean, Song of the South being one notable exception. But most of their racial and wartime material is on uh, DVD. Right now I'm teaching animation history at a school called Woodbury University in Burbank, California. Every school in Southern California, uh, even ones no one's ever heard of, uh, but UCLA, USC, CalArts, Loyola Marymount, uh, Chapman University, on and on and on and on. I mean, there's so many more. They all have film programs. They all have animation programs. The students need to know as part of their animation or their film history about animation history. So now suddenly it's so funny because I remember when I went back to school and you couldn't find, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have a lot of things to find the most basic information about animation and cartoons or be able to see reference copies. We had to use old 16 millimeter prints today. They're now in schools uh, on this side of the hemisphere, history of animation, animation, and filmmaking are major parts of almost every school now. And part of that is because the young kids, the kids who are under 20, who are in college, even even slightly over 20, uh, did not grow up with the cool stuff we all got to see when we were kids. Um, the old Looney Tunes, the old Woody Woodpecker, Mighty Mouse. These are important films and important things to know about how we got to where we are today in animation you know we, we all go to the movies we see pixar films and the disney's frozen and and whatever the latest you know despicable me and, and the simpsons on television family guy in south park and adventure time and i would hope that there's enough curiosity as to wonder how did we get here how did we get to this place and it's turned out to be uh, a role that I'm, I'm, I've been born to do and I'm, I'm playing, which is to help educate people um, as to uh, how we got here, why we got here, how it happened, and who those important players are. You know, a lot of young, younger people don't know 
barely know who Chuck Jones is, mm-hmm. not to mention Tex Avery and Frizz Freeling or that Walt Disney was a human being, you know. So it's become history. It wasn't even that way when I was when I was a younger person, but it's become history now and, and it needs to be remembered. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's one of the the main things uh, the cartoon research blog is sort of uh, yeah. preserving a lot of that stuff. Did cartoon research did that exist in some form before Cartoon Brew? Yes, it did. Yeah. I started doing the story goes. This is the story around two thousand, about the year two. Oh my gosh, the year two thousand or so. I maybe even the year before that. I was uh, blog, and that, there were no blogs. Blogs didn't pop up until like 2004 or something like that, or five. But people started having websites devoted to various things. And uh, I, mean, I know the internet was around before that, but a lot more people started jumping in around uh, the late 90s. And um, I asked a friend who had a website, and I asked, how do you do that? And they told me about a book on uh, HTML, which I bought. And I actually self-taught myself how to code uh, and how to make a website back in that in that period. And I just started a company called Cartoon Research. It was just me. So I wanted to have a cartoon research website. I had done many, many things. I had done fanzines. I had done a cable TV public access show back in the 80s. So I always had this thing about doing some communication via television or fanzines. And the idea of the Internet was like a TV and and fanzines put together. It was a lot of writing, but it came out on a screen. So I started doing cartoon research, and then I I, I began updating it almost every day with some bit of news, a, a little like a primitive version of Cartoon Brew, and where I'd have news, I'd have things about old, things about new. Then I started to notice, I put a little counter in, and I started to notice I would have 300 people a day, and 500 people a day, and eventually it got to about 3,000 a day. And the problem was, there's no money. <laughs> this is still true, folks. There's really no money in the internet. So it was just a labor of love. It was just something I was doing because I wanted to see that there somewhere on the internet. And Amin Amidi was doing a similar, he had a fanzine called Animation Blast, I believe. We knew each other out here in LA and you know we both were like bitching to each other one day about how there's no money in doing this. It's going nowhere. It's like, why are we doing it? It's like, we're doing it because we love doing it. And then we just had this idea, maybe if we just combined our resources, if we just set up a whole separate new site, you know, you could write it one day, and I'll write it one day, and we wouldn't feel obligated, like I felt obligated to write something every day for whoever was checking in. So that's how Cartoon Brew sort of started, and we actually became a business. We had a formal business partnership, 50-50 partners, and we developed that and did that for many, many years, the grind of trying to come up with the stuff that we were doing on a, on a daily basis was very difficult. It was just two guys, really, just us. And um, I really just wanted to get back to, to doing all the other things I do, the teaching. And, of course, all these other things pay, you know, but, the, 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 you know, the teaching, the consulting, the writing books. So the Cartoon Research site was always there. If you look at the Cartoon Research site on the right-hand side, uh, where it says more Cartoon Research, most of those things were there for the last, you know, over 10 years. Uh, the animated movie guide was something I started on Cartoon Research. It was a, a listing of every animated feature. And I turned it into a book called The Animated Movie Guide about in 2005. But I've, I've been updating it, you know, just with the titles and the basic information all the way up to today. And I've been doing that on Cartoon Research all along. That's still there. Um, there's a, a sections on uh, the classic animation studios, frequently asked questions. Some of these things are kind of old now, 
And so I've gone back to cartoon research, turned it into a, a blog, started out back in uh, February, I think it was, um, uh, writing all the posts. Every single day I'd write a post. And then I started having friends, uh, Steve Stanchfield, Jim Corcus, uh, Charles Brubaker, uh, Mike Kazala. I mean, I, I now I have this uh, Greg Abar. I'm going to forget somebody, Fred Patton. All these friends of mine who are uh, colleagues who didn't have blogs who, who but love writing about animation history. And they all were like, can we help? Can we jump in? Can we do something? And it's just been great for me because I'm learning stuff that they're contributing. I have... I'd like to take a moment to plug that uh, Jim Corcus does these animation anecdotes and interviews with classic animators that he had done in years past that he's now sharing with us. Uh, Steve Stanchfield is the proprietor of Thunderbean Animation, a spectacular one-man DVD company here in the United States where he restores rare animation, classic Hollywood stuff and all sorts of things. It's like what we call, I don't know if you have the Criterion Collection, yeah. where yeah. you are. Yeah, He's like a one-man animation Criterion Collection. And uh, he's been contributing weekly with uh, tidbits from his collection and oddball things that he hasn't found a place for to put on onto DVD. Brubaker and uh, Patton uh, contribute a lot of oddball, obscuro information on anime. I, I don't want to just do a column on anime on my on this site, but I I have definitely an interest in anime, and I'm particularly interested in the stuff from the '60s and '70s. Because uh, it's such so so weird, and it wasn't the polished, sophisticated anime that we have today. It's uh, it's just strange, strange stuff. So they write about uh, the early parts of that, and on and on. Greg Abar is writing about uh, animation on records and soundtracks, and uh, Mike Kazala is writing about uh, classic animated advertising and TV commercials, and identifying who the animators were behind these great commercials. And again, I'm, I'm leaving out people, but on and on and on. So it's just been a ball for me. It's the kind of website I would check out every day. And I hope uh, if you have an interest in animation history, uh, you or your listeners, readers, will do so as well. Animation Scoop is completely different. Once in a while, something like um, Get a Horse, which is coming up. This is a new Disney short that looks like a 1928. Something like once in a while, something cool like that will happen where it will apply to cartoon research and animation scoop but that's that's pretty rare but uh, animation scoop is really just if you're interested in what's going on with the people making the the tv shows and movies uh and and i feel like i'm i've still yet to develop that site i'm 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 working on it sort of on the run i feel like i want to tell people give me another give me another 6 months on this one it's going to it's going to get cool it's going to get cool but right now i'm sort of like you know working myself up to it and but it's 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 still good as it is but it's uh um, you know it's gonna get better uh from what i gather you've also been doing a bit of programming for festivals and events and uh showcases and things like that and uh i was sort of interested in your process when it comes to that is there a sort of art of of putting together a, a really good program the word is curating, the art of curating the program. Uh, you're right. See, I, I, like I say, I, I actually forget how many things I'm involved with. I do a lot of stuff locally. I work with ASIFA, ASIFA Hollywood here. We have regular screenings, and I do, I do Q&As with the directors and things like that. We have an amazing event called CTN Expo coming up at the end of uh, November in about a month. It's becoming like the equivalent of an animation comic-con you know it's like a it's like a huge event for just for people in animation and i put on programs there i also you're right i put on programs at uh, local theaters here in la but i also do uh programming at festivals and uh museums and 
theaters around the country uh, on occasion. I just came back from Detroit, Michigan, and I highly recommend anybody to get over to the Detroit Institute of the Arts to see a fantastic program and weekly animation screenings that are going on there about animation. It's an exhibit called Watch Me Move from the Barbican yes, uh, from England. And it started there, but they this is the next stop. I don't know where it's going, if anywhere else, beyond the Detroit Institute. They, they purposely uh, looked at it and had it brought over. Whether it'll be touring the U.S. or anywhere else, I do not know. It's unbelievable. I really highly recommend people checking this incredible installation out. Uh, it's the history of animation in an installation uh, like like I've never seen. End of plug. But I, um, <laughs> yeah, I have my own methods that I've come up with now for for programming and curating animation. I personally am looking to communicate to the least knowledgeable in the audience because it's funny because I do attract what I call fans, people who are very knowledgeable, who have read books I've worked on or are very savvy on the internet and they 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 kind of know a lot, and that's great. I got stuff for you too, but mainly I find when I do public shows, I want people to join us. I don't want them to come and I'm showing esoteric stuff and they're going to think, I don't want to see that crap or that was, that was boring. I don't want to, you know, I want to make sure the programs I do are entertaining uh, that will have people be more intrigued to check out my site or check out other sites on the internet and books about about the history of or uh or just the field in general so i try to do that i I, you know it depends on the program i usually start off with something great and i certainly end with something great and always happy to either write notes or be available to talk more about who the filmmakers are and um so i i do i do programs and if there's anyone in uh europe great britain i've been there would love to come back (laughs) excellent excellent well uh thank you so much for talking to us and uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. So that was Ben interviewing Jerry Beck, talking about pretty much everything there, books, websites. He's a very prolific guy. He's got an awful lot under his uh, under his belt there, hasn't he? Certainly. If you want to find out more about Jerry, or particularly his work, you can log on to cartoonresearch.com. Uh, it's a site dedicated to classic cartoons. Uh, you can also log on to Animation Scoop, which is blogs.indiewire.com slash animation scoop. And as far as I'm aware, I think all his work for Cartoon Brew is still archived on there. I mean, I imagine most people are familiar with Cartoon Brew anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Other websites to look at when you're not looking at Squiggly. We love them all. Yeah. If you're talking about animation, you're all right by us. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So, next up on the podcast is a man who really, truly does not need an introduction. Uh, It's an expression that we use from time to time when introducing people. But in this man's case, he really is, in a very literal sense, a household name. I think most of our listeners and, and pretty much every animator worth their salt will have his book in their household. The Animator's Survival Kit, all about the craft of animation for people who... I would say just want to take animation seriously. We are, of course, talking about Mr. Richard Williams. It's an immense pleasure to have him on this podcast and to sort of explore his work a little bit more. I certainly remember him best for the Animator's Survival Kit because it's the book that I picked up before going to university. I think I had it college, actually, but it's a book that most students have 
before embarking on an animation course at university and it's like you say any animator worth the salt will still refer to it from time to time it's one of those books it's one of the big i'd say there were big five books and and, an animator survival kit is certainly one of them you do need to have a firm sort of foundation to build uh, your own style upon and this is a very good blueprint for that foundation it's also accompanied by a DVD lecture series that I think at this point most universities have in their libraries. It's definitely worthwhile viewing. It goes through a lot of the principles of the book, a lot of the techniques, a lot of the examples, but you have the option of going through it visually, frame by frame, and uh, listening to the man himself discuss the theory behind it and uh, it's very engaging and it really is perhaps more accessible to some degree being able to see these exercises applied in such a way yeah it's it's recently been turned into an app as well Mm. and like you say seeing it visually in front of you especially exercises in the book which don't quite translate as well such as timing these are the exercises that really benefit from a a sort of a visual tuition which the app and uh, the dvds do really really well so as well as the release of this app which is a brilliant and very logical extension of the lessons in the book and uh, really really worth a look i think you can even download a free demo it's also the 25th anniversary this year of one of his most significant contributions to cinema i would say probably his involvement in who framed roger rabbit is uh well who doesn't love that film idiots you know idiots don't love that film exactly it does everything right it's just it's so joyful everyone in it is having a really good time you get that impression the interaction between the animation and the live action i i've said this before on the podcast i've never actually seen it done as well since roger rabbit if you look at a film like space jam or that other one the brendan fraser looney tunes one the cartoons don't interact with the humans in that sort of fluid way that they do in Roger Rabbit. Mm -hmm. Like, he really, really nailed it. I think that goes hand-in-hand with the setting as well, obviously with a sort of film noir, detective drama, 1940s flavour that the whole thing had, and then they just throw all these classic tunes in there. Yeah. It's just the perfect match for the film. When you think of, you know, classic Looney Tunes or classic animated characters, you don't necessarily think of basketball. No. You know, you don't necessarily think of an Indiana Jones-style adventure. It's something that hasn't been topped since. No. I think it has an awful lot to do with the attention to detail that that the characters were given. Bugs Bunny was Bugs Bunny. He wasn't trying to be modernised. He wasn't placed in a setting that the audience would be unfamiliar with. No. He was stood alongside Mickey Mouse, which looked weird, but just felt perfect. <laughs> well, that was such a... Because as a kid, you don't sort of question whatever legal negotiations <laughs> need to be hammered out for that scene. It's just like, oh, great, Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse are on screen at the same time. Yeah. And they're ganging up to make life unpleasant for Bob Hoskins. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just wonderful. But yeah, I mean, Richard Williams' body of work, it's not just to frame Roger Rabbit. I mean, the guy has created some of the best-known advertisements. He's won Oscars for short films, which he directed with some of the greatest animation directors we've ever had. I mean, animation as an art form is relatively young, a hundred and so years old. But, you know, when you talk about Chuck Jones and, and people like that, he's actually worked with these guys. He's, mm. you know, he's got an awful lot to be thankful for, for this man. So with all that being said, we're very delighted, very proud to have the great Richard Williams on the Squiggly Podcast talking to yourself, Steve. Let's give the interview a listen. 
So, Richard Williams, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today. Well, we're here talking about 80 years of, of Richard Williams. It must be a very exciting year for you, probably the busiest of your life so far. Well, I mean, it's, uh, I'm always drawing, you see. <laughs> so it, it's interfering with the drawing, but other, other than that, it's great. It's great. Um, it's a, an awful lot of stuff. <laughs> uh, so, so do you mind being in the spotlight? No, no, I'm a natural ham, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, it's uh, it's funny because when you're drawing, it, everything is total silence and there's nobody there, and then suddenly you're you're on the stage and um, you know it's, it's uh, no, it's exciting to do it, you know, and and it's very unusual for me to see. I've never seen all my stuff put together like that ever. It's uh, quite a shock for me. Huh. It's, uh, it's quite entertaining for the audience. I can tell you that I did enjoy some of the the film. Well, the, all of the films rather at um, at Edinburgh, but some of the films which I hadn't seen in a long while, um, and some of the films which I hadn't seen at all. I hadn't seen Love Me, Love Me, Love Me before, and I, I was oh. in, I loved it. I was in stitches. Oh, good. You know that really was the basis of my studio because I managed to get Kenneth Williams to do it. I said, if you don't do the voice, I can't do the film. Because <laughs> it's just got to be your voice, you know. Because they used to have this thing, listen with mother, uh-huh. on the radio, and they would talk down to the children with these, you know, little red bratty. So I, I, I thought, Kenneth, you, you've got to do this, please. Anyway, he did, and we used, to, I think, take one, and and when he sang at the end, I used take two. I mean, it was just perfect, perfect, and the film did. It just. Um, it went out with British Lion. The Bolton Brothers took it, and they were marvelous. And they released it twice. It went around the world, and all these checks came in. And I thought, I did it as a private joke, you see. I thought, nobody's going to like this. It's just what I think is funny. And uh, I was thinking of quitting animation because it's so expensive, and, and, and I'd go back to painting in the Mediterranean somewhere. And then they, all these checks came in, and I thought, Christ, everybody likes, thinks what I think is funny. They think it's funny as well. So, and and uh, so I, I had enough money to start the studio. Wow. Huh. I didn't know it was no. such a, a pivotal film. Oh, absolutely. It even got reviewed in Playboy. I mean, it was very... And, and the Bolting Brothers were going to take... Uh, they said, we'll take anything you've got, you know. But then I got knee-deep into the start of The Thief. And, and uh, didn't do another short. And then by the time I got going, the Bolton brothers said British Lion had moved. They, they were not in power anymore. Hmm. However, it was... Uh, <laughs> I, I, anyway, it's, it, I find it funny. <laughs> <laughs> Um, something I'd like to, to, to talk to you about um, is uh, in your book, The Animator's Survival Kit, which I'm sure many people would have heard of, <laughs> especially listeners to our podcast. Uh, there's a great line in there um, by your mother uh, about how um, people at art school sit around practicing the signature all day um, and they're not learning how to actually draw. I mean, these are, these are like very wise words. And, and, and aside from the practical examples in the book, that was one of the pieces of advice that that really stuck with me personally. And I believe oh, she was uh, well. I, I believe she was an illustrator. Um, I mean, was she a key yes. figure in your artistic background? And I mean, did you have an artistic family? Was this the this set you off on the yes. road? Yes, yes, uh, really. 
my my uh, my uncles and aunt, they were all all very artistic, very bright, and my mother was the best of the lot. One of my uncles was uh, was taught was uh, Montgomery's in, in the D Day. I mean, in he was he ended up as Montgomery's personal photographer, my uncle Ken, and and uh, he was on the D Day landings and stuff as a, as Canadian war photographer. Anyway, they were, my mum was a terrific natural draftsman and very musical, and um, she became a commercial artist and and her own illustrative thing and just kind of fizzled out in a way. Um, same because she was really good, and any talent I've got is from her. She gave me another piece of really marvelous advice. She said, "Don't worry about style. I don't even think about it. Just, just, uh, just do your work, and the style will will occur." And and I found that's true. You know, even though I've worked in so many different styles, we had the, I'd never had an exhibition, and I had one two two years ago in Annecy, and I thought, God, this is going to look like twenty different people's work. Because I was such a chameleon, you see, and and when I saw it, I was very surprised. It did look like one person's work, <laughs> at least to me, you know. <laughs> uh, did she turn down a job at Disney? I think you said that at Edinburgh. I thought that was uh... yes. It, she she when I was five years old, she she had a friend at Disney, a fellow called Eric Gurney, who was a top story artist and he'd been an animator there and he, he did a lot of the story work on in the 40s at Disney and um, they were very interested in her work and in her coming to Disney but she had a you know she just had me as a little kid and stuff and she didn't go so I, I, she took me to see Snow White when I was five and she said I, I was never the same again <laughs> and and uh, I, I see all the other kids that saw Snow White thought they were little dwarves or they thought they were real and I knew they were drawings you see and so I was uh, I was hooked I said how can they how can you imagine the impression on a five-year-old who never stops drawing anyway these are drawings that were walking and talking you know this is amazing oh, it still is all these years later as well such a good film yeah and then, and then right after you know the next year it was I saw Pinocchio the next year it was Fantasia the next year I could so I'd be you know, sort of nine when I saw Dumbo and the, and Bambi. <laughs> you know, five of them just one each year, bam, bam, bam. And it marked me. It just it opened up the world of the imagination, you know. You revisited Bambi um, when it was re-released, didn't you, after The Little Island? And that had a, an even more profound effect, I, I read. Yes, yes, because I'd stubbed my nose at it when I was making The Little Island because I thought I was ever so inventive, you see, and then I, I thought, oh, talking animals, sentimentality, and all this stuff. When I saw it again, I just thought, I, I mean, I was shattered. I just thought, I don't even know how they did it. How, do you, how could they do that? It's uh, astonishing. And that's kind of what's happened to me all the way through, if you can call it a career, whatever it is I've done. I, I kept being shocked at, at the very best work, you see, and being brought to my knees. And then the death followed by the desperate attempt to be able to do equal that, you know. You've obviously you've you've worked with an awful lot of the the animators from from Disney, from Warner Brothers, and and, and things like that. So you've worked with uh, Chuck Jones and Ken Harris and and, uh, and all yeah. these masters of animations. And and I, I believe you had trouble convincing Milt Carl 
he was the world's greatest animator. Did he ever accept that statement? He did. In the, you know, I, I, it's a wonderful, bit of a long story. I, I had a, you know, we became friends. It's a, and he was marvelously generous with me with his, you know, with help and stuff. And I used to just go, go regularly to catch the drippings. <laughs> and he was, or the pearls. Um, and I hadn't been in touch with him for a couple of years. And I rung him up. And he, he said, and he left Disney and, and, uh, he, he was a trout fisherman. He was having a marvelous life and everything. And I said, yeah, I haven't, I haven't been in touch. And he said, well, he said, I'm getting, you know, I'm, I forget how old he was, but he was old. And, and, and he said, and I'm not well. And I said, right, I'll be right there. He was in, uh, San Francisco and he'd remarried. And, uh, I managed to book George Lucas's dummy theater, which is a great big pink, womb of a theater and they were and after they'd show they were making Ewoks or whatever it was when they cleared out I was able to go into the theater with Mills and his wife and we ran about 25 minutes that I had of the thief the best stuff and when the, and so it was just the three of us in this pink womb up came the lights and, and the projectionist ran out of the booth and I guess it was the sound guy that also came out from another door and one of them yelled who did that who did that and I, and I said well that's that's my work and and, and the, the guy yelled then you must be the world's greatest animator and I waited theatrically for a while and I just I stood up and I pointed down to Milt and yelled back no this is the world's greatest animator and and he is <laughs> his was <laughs> so it was a terrific um, thank you you know for, for it was a marvelous I've been very very lucky and to work with Ken Harris was, and and Chuck Jones was always the ally and but I I then so my, I had fourteen years with Ken you know and then and then fourteen we had about thirteen years with Art Babbitt. And then we had Grim Natwick for a year, and I knew, you know, he was a friend as well. And then I'd go, and all these guys helped me, you know. They knew I was dead serious yeah. and working hard. And Milt loved the Christmas Carol. He wrote me a big, he wrote me a fan letter. I'd written him a huge fan letter after I saw The Jungle Book. And uh, finally I got one back, but <laughs> Dude, I wrote, I, I, I more fan letters to him than he has to me. <laughs> 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 Must be nice getting responses from fan letters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. We, we, I, I rung him up. He would always deny that he did beautiful drawings. You see, he always said he had. Everybody says and that he did have a struggle. But he would never know it looking at the drawings. You know, all the drawings in his. In, everybody go through his wastebasket at the end of the day and take these beautiful drawings which he rejected and. Uh, what am I trying to say? Oh, yeah, when I, I rung him up, it was about three days before he died. I didn't know this. And I had this very emotional conversation, which I thanked him for everything. And uh, we were going to try to work together, you know. Um, anyway, I think, and I, I said, listen, you're always saying you can't do these goddamn drawings. They're, they're not, you know, you're not really a draftsman. I said, who did them? Who did? Did somebody else do them? Or did you do these? And he finally said, yeah, I did. And I said, well, then will you accept, finally, 
that that you you are a beautiful draftsman, and, and he said, "Oh, all right." <laughs> <laughs> so that was quite a victory, and I, I, I it was very emotional conversation. And but when I hung up, I, I went into mode. My wife and said, "Gee, I've just had this very emotional conversation with Nelt." I mean, it's never been like this. It's very, very, it's kind of shaking. And and uh, he died two days later. Wow. You know, Blimey. Yeah, Marvel, I, I was so lucky. You know, and Frank Thomas at Disney, and Ollie Johnson helped me. You know, Ollie Johnson, when, when uh, he said to me, we, we had a dinner with somebody, with Frank and Ollie and, and uh, Joe Grant, the story guy. Uh-huh. And 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 uh, at the end of it, I mean, and my book had come out, you see. So they all have signed the book to these guys and everything. And Ollie said, "I wish I'd had a book like this, animated survival kit, when I was young." So I wrote that down. Right <laughs> and then when when Frank was leaving, he had a, a walk walker, you know, and he had a little horn on it. He was a musician. He was always beeping the horn, and he as you. The last time I ever saw him, and as he went away, he said, "Well, you've just done what we were going to do." <laughs> wow! And they never did it, you know. Of course, it's it, um, the best. I think the best thing about the animated survival kit, and I, I would suppose your career in, in in general, with you bringing across um, Ken Harris and, and, and Art Babbitt and, and, and Chuck Jones to work with with younger animators. Um, is the fact that you've shared all this knowledge with everybody. I mean, you know, animation students pick up the animated survival kit before they pick up the prospectus. You know, it's it's yeah. it's part and oh, parcel of the whole thing. Well, that, that's what I want. You see, everybody was so generous with me. I thought, if I have, you know, as I get this stuff, I'm going to disseminate it, you know. The thing was that they were very secretive, The old, generally speaking, the older animators. Um, nobody had this knowledge, and they were kind of, you know, they were they knew they were the only ones in the world who could do this stuff. But then they realized that they were getting old and that they were going to die. They, they switched, and they became, they became very open about it. And I just tried to compile it all so that everybody else... I, when Art Babbitt gave his first seminar, which took a month in, in, in London, we closed the studio for the morning. And we'd go around the corner to a preview theater, and Art would teach for three hours every day. And and I invited my uh, competitors, <laughs> which was kind of which was a sort of commercial mistake because they all got better, you know. <laughs> but it, it, but so did we. I should and really, I I don't think I'm that. I wonder if I was being generous or if I just wanted it myself, you know, because uh, I, I just, uh, I, I was always, I just wanted to be able to do it, you know, and differently. Mm. But I wanted the principles. And I, I just, I was so lucky to, to meet these guys. And, and I got, um, I, I managed, Ken Hatz came because I was having dinner with uh, Chuck Jones and I was telling him, how I admired Ken Harris's work. And Chuck said, oh, um, well, you, you can't tell his work. I mean, it's how can you tell his work? It's all, it's all mushed in with everybody else's. And I said, oh, no, I can tell his drawing. It's, it's slightly squarer. And he drawing. I mean, it's very distinctive. And Chuck said, okay, tell me what shots, what scenes he did. So I, 
This is when I was a little kid. I noticed all this stuff, you see. I used to come home after seeing these films and, and write, write up a, a, a page on each one. Wow. So I knew all this stuff. And, and so I rattled off all Ken's work with him. And Chuck was amazed. He said, Christ, he said, well, listen, he's just retired now. And he said, he, he's, his, his wife is a traveler and they may be coming to Europe. Why don't you write him a fan letter? He's, he's interested in cars. So I wrote Ken a fan letter and told him what had happened and, and said, I know nothing about cars. <laughs> but uh, anyway, he came, we got on so well that um, I sat him down and, and his wife went off to Italy or somewhere. And three months later, he was still at the desk. <laughs> and then he went, he went away back home for about six months and, and then came back. And then he ended up staying, really, for the next 12 years. Wow. So I worked with him every day, you know. Nice. And uh, after about eight years, he said to me, he said, hey, Dick, you're starting to put those things in the right place. Because he would take my drawings and chop them up and move the head and this, move the hand over here slightly. And and uh, he said, you're starting to put them in the right place. And I said, yeah, I'm getting it. Eight years with you, I'm really getting it. He said, yeah, he said, you could be an animator. <laughs> so I, I, I went and I, I went and I said, I have to go to the toilet. And I went and I sat, I sat on the stairs and I was swearing and saying, God damn these, I'm an artist and these guys, they're just moving mechanics. God damn it, you know. And, and after about 10 minutes of this, I said, yeah, Dick, and you're a fraud and you better go back in there and start learning to be a movement mechanic. <laughs> And that's what I did, you know. I went really hard at it. And about the next year, I showed him a, a big scene I'd done. And uh, it, it's the one with the cards with the magician, Zigzag and the Thief. Yes. And, and I ran that for him. And he said, oh, all right, you're an animator. <laughs> <laughs> he was like that. And uh, right at the end, I, he, he said, um, I, I, he'd gone to sleep. I used to go to California and do all his work, lay it all out. And one day, he, he'd always have a nap. It would take sort of five hours to do it. And he'd take a half-hour nap. One day, he did, didn't get up for about three hours. He came out and he said, Oh, I've done the scene. I'm so old, God, I'm so old. I'm sorry, I just fell asleep. And you've done it all. Oh, wait a minute. That's wrong. He, he nailed the thing I'd done wrong. It was a vulture landing. And uh, he was right, of course. And I said, oh, Ken, this is, you know, I, I've, been, I've had 12 years with you or 13 years, whatever it is, and I've been drinking your blood regularly, and I can't get it. It's going to die with you. And he sort of snickered. And he put his hand on my shoulder. He said, oh, you'll be all right now. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how he was. I mean, he's just honest. Terribly wow. honest. Terrific animator. Yeah. We're doing a, a dance. He, he won, we, I had the thief dancing when he robbed from himself. He reached around a pillar and robbed him his pearls from hanging out from his rope. He, just, he didn't realize he robbed himself. He did this silly dance. And Ken was going to animate it. So Ken said, well, why don't you do the dance? So I did this silly dance. He said, okay, now do it again. So I did it again, more or less the same. He said, right, I got it. He just sat down and animated it. 
he'd been a champion dancer. And, uh, <laughs> I, you know, it, it's amazing. I can do that now. I finally, I could do it. But then it was, it was like watching a miracle, you know. He, he just animated it. It came out exactly as I danced it. <laughs> Excellent. I did. I did. Uh, I have seen the, the scenes from from the thief, especially the the card zigzag scene. What a what a shot! Well, that was my graduation scene. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. But uh, even then, Ken Ken Ken, he spot the weaknesses. You know, these guys had extra bits. I mean, Art Babbitt said to me once when I was doing pretty good work. You know, and he said. Don't think you know everything. <laughs> <laughs> but I was after everything. I got, you know, finally, about three years ago, even after all this teaching and iPad, you know, and DVDs, the book and all the stuff, I think rubbing your nose in the basics does something to you. Mm-hmm. And I rung up my brother and said, uh, you know, I'm here I am at 75 and I've, I've, I've gotten... I've really gotten this thing. I'm really better than I ever was. I've got this thing. I can do anything I want now. And he said, well, as long as you think so, it doesn't really matter. (laughs) (laughs) So. Um, I suppose the film that you're most likely uh, to be associated with is Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Um, Yeah. Could we we talk a little bit about the the magnificent opening sequence uh, first, and, and, and how much involvement you had in that? I mean, was it heavily scripted, or did you have free reign over the gags? Because it's a little bit of a, it's like a cause and effect masterclass. You know, the whole oh, oh, good gags and everything. Well, this was a what Zemeckis said to me was, "Look, we just want you don't have to, you know, because we knew the whole film was going very well." He said, "The opening just it doesn't have to be very special." Just, just giving a good, solid Tom and Jerry type opening. Don't make it too good, Dick. And I thought, because he knew I was going to, uh, I would be left alone. You see, there could be no live action. And also, I, I said to Bob, look, the way we're doing this rabbit, that he's like a piece of chewing gum flashing around. I said, the only, we've got to get him talking at the, at the front. You've got to meet him at least. And uh, why don't we have him talking about his family or multiple rabbits or something where you can at least focus on the character. And and, um, and he said, yeah, yeah, that's fine. You can, yeah, go, go improvise an opening. And and uh, Charlie Fleischer, the voice, is very creative. And, and I said, we got to get a, you got to have a, a stutter of some sort. All these cartoon characters, the Warners things all have speech impediments. So he invented this on the spot, this sort of thing that the rabbit does. And we went into the studio and I remember he was recording it. We, we, he just improvised talking about his family. And in came Bob and, and Zemeckis and, and he said, he took one look and he said, oh, well, you guys know what you're doing. And he went out. Then I had drawn the first half of it before they start running around the, the, um, I've done it in color, a bit of storyboard. Every 16 frames, I've done a color drawing of the whole thing and ran that for Spielberg and Zemeckis to calm everybody down. And they just said, yeah, that's great. And then the running around stuff, 
three of us just just it was Bob and me and uh, Simon Wells who was my protege then and we just rocked very crudely in one day just the sort of gags I mean very, not even proper stick figure kind of thing and and I was just left alone and uh, so I, I decided to really have a go at the opening I thought well this is where I'm going to get some credit <laughs> you know and uh, they just let me alone. In fact, uh, I even hired uh, uh, Roy Nesbitt, who worked, wasn't working on Roger Rabbit. He was working on my other stuff, but we, I still had a little studio going. And I hired him with my wages to work with me on, on a couple of the crazy shots. He's an expert at pans and stuff, you know, bypacks and things like that. Yeah. So, anyway... I went to, I, I just decided to have a really have a go. And I remember Bob coming into me at one point and saying, Dick, you can keep spending all this time on this. I mean, it's, it's worrying everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so I, 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 I did a lot of it at home. <laughs> so I'm quite pleased with it. I thought I got a real shot at it, you know. It's great. It's, it's, a, it's a fantastic opening to a, to a fantastic film. I mean, Working with all the the other characters, um, you know, having fun to, to to play with all these other characters, you must have been like a kid in a sweet shop. Yeah, well, everybody did. All the animators were fans of the stuff, anyway, mm-hmm. and so it, it was good. I mean, the brief was, um, and this is from Bob Zemeckis had a very clear idea. He said, "I want Warner characters. They should look like Warner Brothers characters. They should be. They should move like Disney." It shouldn't be limited animation at all. It should be smooth like Disney. And it should be Tex Avery humor, but not so brutal. And that was the recipe. So I just sat down and followed it. You know, and as a little kid, I'd drawn all these characters, of course. And so it was just, that wasn't hard at all. You know, in, in fact, it was just, the whole job was was fun. High pressure, but fun. <laughs> <laughs> I think I read somewhere that, that you uh, animated Baby Herman, like all Baby Herman, or, or most of Baby Herman. I mean, was that a scheduling yeah. thing, or did you sort of, like, latch onto the character and, and want to make him your own? Yes, I did. I did. I did, I did the baby nearly everywhere. I mean, 95% of it. And uh, Such a great character. I, oh, good. I, I, well, you know, he was the villain. Instead of the live-action... Uh, um, Forgotten his name, Christopher Lloyd. Yes, Bob brought him in later in the in the story in the the book and in the script. The the baby was actually the the villain, and, mm. and he ran ran Toontown and everything. And Bob, I think he was right in doing it. It made it stronger mm-hmm. to have Christopher Lloyd. You know, we could do all that stuff with the eyes and everything. <laughs> wow. But, uh, so I thought I was doing the villain at, at, at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> it changed all the time. It kept, kept rewriting, mm-hmm. uh, improving. Going back to sort of commercial work um, and things, I recently talked to I met, met Eric Goldberg in in Annecy, um, uh-huh. and he, he he sort of talked about Soho at the time and how it was kind of like a almost made it like a melting pot of artists and animators. Um, that seemed like a bit of a, a golden age, all the guys that were there, like Bob Godfrey and, and things like that. Yes, yeah, it was, it was. 
I think a lot of it happened because we brought in the, you know, Ken Harris was there, Babbitt was there most of the time. Mm -hmm. he, he traveled between the two countries. And uh, Abe Levito worked there. Um, Chuck Jones gave lectures at my place. Um, Milt gave a lecture at my place. Um, you know, and, and, and people came in from outside, you know, it was, and it, I think it's just because everybody got better, mm -hmm. and and it just took off. The, the, some of the uh, commercial work um, created by your studio at the time, um, there's an incredible incredible variation of the work. I mean, was this down to the client's needs, or, or, or do you have a, like a particularly fond um, commercial that you worked on? Well, my favorite is the one um, that I didn't animate, but I laid it out. The, the, the Super Sharp piece with the two babies, mm -hmm. William's voice on one. Do you know that one? Yes, I think I've seen it. I may have seen it on, on YouTube, I believe. Yeah, I think I've seen it as, as, as part of the archive. It was a really funny idea, and beautiful, Russell did a beautiful job on it. And I roughed it out, and they wanted Renaissance babies, so I did sort of Michelangelo muscled, highly muscled babies. And then uh, they changed it and did it, actually made it better by making a much more charming little cute baby. Huh. Anyway, that, I, I figured that was, uh, that's my favorite commercial. But I enjoyed the Crest of Bears. Yes. A lot. You know, that was, they were funny ideas to begin with. And, <laughs> and I was left alone. They trusted me and I, <laughs> I enjoyed those. They got a tremendous and, reaction at Edinburgh. Yeah, I did. well, they're funny ideas, you know, good, good tracks and everything. I enjoyed the, uh, doing the presenter thing. Which is, you know, the uh, male perfume thing. Oh, yes, you know, yes. <laughs> Sex appeal. What was, yes. It, it was the first, as far as I know, the first commercial to sell male perfume. <laughs> <laughs> Everything was thrown at that one. That was incredible. <laughs> yeah. It was done in six weeks. It was a rush, rush job. Wow. So much detail yeah. as well. Yeah. So those are the best, those the better ones anyway. We used to just crank them out, you know. But the marvelous thing about doing commercials is that you're in, you, you get a, you just have to crank them out as fast as you can and as best you can. And, and that being in all different styles, it, it, you're, you know, it, it really helps because you're, uh, you're not stuck in, say, a cartoon formula, say, a Hollywood formula. I remember Bill said to me after he saw the, Titles on that we did for the Return of the Pink Panther. He said, "Yeah, yeah, fine." But um, he said, "You know, I'd like to see what you can do without such a dumb Hollywood character." <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so we we, we were we were doing all you know all these different illustrative things or very crude cartoons or a range of stuff, and that helps it because then you're you're using the principles of animation and, and using more muscles, you know, to do it. So, so at the tender age of 80, we're all delighted to hear that you're still working on, uh, on films and projects. And obviously... You, you well, one, one big film. I've been on this thing off and on for in between um, doing the DVDs and the book and the, the iPad app recently. It took quite a lot of time. We spent a year on that thing. And um, 
but I, I'm constantly, I'm, I'm, I'm making, I'll be back at my desk this afternoon, and you know, I'm, I'm on this picture, everybody says, well, what, what's it called? called I, the working title, I'll tell you the working title. It's called, Will That Finish This? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm animated, this is my best stuff I'm doing now. I really have gotten better. I don't think it's an illusion. I can do stuff. I said to my brother, it's just like turning on the tap now. Out it comes, you know, I don't have to think twice. Wow. And, and I'm doing very difficult stuff. But the, the, the one thing I'm really pleased with in my life, one of the things anyway, is that I finally got there where I wanted to get to with the knowledge and stuff. And uh, of course the Japanese say, once you come to fruition, no, it's Chinese saying, once you come to fruition, you're already in decline. But uh, I'm enjoying the fruition. <laughs> good, good, good. I mean, uh, you, you can't tell us anything about about prologue. I mean, obviously the, there's the sayings of it being ancient Greek and things like what it's based yeah, on. Yeah, well, it, it's, um, it's not. It's impossible to describe. Um, it's just very new. It's stuff that's never been done before. I, I don't know how to describe it. You'd have to see it. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it. I'll tell you that. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Well, I hope I finish it. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, Richard Williams. Okay, thanks. Thank you very much Great. for talking to Squiggly today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Same here, Steve. Great. So Richard Williams there, talking to Steve. Uh, all about his career, the great work he's done, the valuable contributions to animation as a whole. It was a tremendous privilege to interview Rich Williams. And now to be able to share the interview with, with our listeners, people who listen to these podcasts gain a little bit of inspiration from listening to their heroes. And I'm sure Rich Williams is a hero to many. So, yeah, that was a, a boon, as they say. And, of course, the animator's survival kit is still very much in stock. I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. I believe it was expanded on a few years ago, uh, so it's even bigger. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there's the DVD and the app, which I believe is available from iTunes. And you can find out all the information on uh, all forms of this very essential piece of work at theanimatorssurvivalkit.com. So Disney are back in cinemas at the moment with an animated feature film. Obviously, that's what they're best known for in the animation world. And this film appears to be a bit of a, a cut above the rest. It does seem like a lot of people seem to be anticipating this more than the last couple of Disney films. Steve, I put to you, uh, what is it about this film that's got everyone all a flutter, if I may be so bold? Well, the the reviews are already out and, you know, headlines like, you know, believe the hype and, and, and everything like, you know, things like this really kind of suggests that this is something completely new. If you take a look at the, the review that we've got online, Stephen Cavalier himself, something of an animation historian, his book, The World History of Animation, is a great book. little plug there for you, Stevie. He's reviewed the film and he admitted, even from the point of view of a grumpy old man, he enjoyed the film. You know, he said that it's a it's a cut above. It's uh, you know the music's back, Ben. You know, do you remember when when we were kids and the, the Disney films were on the TV or or in the cinemas and they were set up like musicals? What you mean, like uh, Tangled? 
Well, a little bit like Tangled. All those years ago. All those many years ago, yeah. Um, another thing that, that really... When did they stop doing that? When did they stop doing that? I can think of that? two films, The Emperor's New Groove and Wreck-It Ralph didn't have songs. And Chicken Little. That was a... Okay. I... And Meet the Robinsons. Would those films have been improved by music? I don't think there's anything that could have improved those films. The problem... <laughs> okay, so after that lofty one-film break... <laughs> They're back with the songs. Good to know. Yeah, well, you Good. know, Wreck-It Ralph, it did have music, but he had music by, like, Owl City. And if you look at films like Brother Bear and Tarzan, you know, you had, like, Phil Collins doing the music, which didn't really sort of gel as much as when a film is created using... The, a Disney film, rather, is created using the kind of musical tradition that they were so, so well-known for. I mean, let's look back at Beauty and the Beast. I mean, you, you can say that there was music entangled. Was it as good as the music in Beauty and the Beast? I don't know if I could comment on that. I'm not sure if I'm the authority. I don't remember any of the songs entangled. I, I saw it once. But probably to kids it was. Like, I don't think the main audience are that discerning. Mm. You know? If you're talking about Disney films and Disney films' musical tradition... Would you say that Wreck-It Ralph or Tangled were held within Disney's musical tradition? Well, I guess Tangled would have been, but not Wreck-It Ralph, because Tangled had bits where the characters break into song. I am thinking of the right film, right? That's the Rapunzel one. Yeah, 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 Rapunzel. Did that not have songs, or am I just inventing phantom music memories? I I don't know if it did have songs, I'm trying to think myself. I think it had something about a sort of spinning round in the morning and doing some painting and all that kind of stuff and being bored. But I don't remember that song as well as I remember Be Our Guest or... No, because you were a kid when that film came out. So you remembered things a lot more. You probably watched that film a lot more as well. I don't know if it really is a commentary on it letting the tradition slide. If a cartoon film for children that you watch as an adult doesn't have the same resonance with you as a cartoon film for children that you watched as a child did. You mm. see what I mean? I sort of see what you mean. Well, I don't... You know how the human brain works. When you're developing as a child, it's, it, you're way much more of a sponge. And the whole thing about nostalgia... It's, that it harkens back to a period where you were just absorbing and absorbing and absorbing and that's why it becomes sort of a comforting thing so obviously if you're walking around a department store or something or I don't know what venues would play a Disney soundtrack but Be Our Guest comes on and you think to yourself oh I, li I love this film you know and it takes you back to that warm cozy place before the world became a horrendous grey world of despair mm-hmm Whereas Tangled, you probably saw it a press junket. It probably didn't quite have the same impact on you as a, as a work of cinema in terms of the place you were in, how you perceived the film, how you took in the music. Hmm. Can you see how they're slightly different cinematic experiences? I can see how they're slightly different cinematic experiences. Okay. Although when I was a child, I did, I did sit there with a little notepad and I was writing down every little thing about the film. Oh. <laughs> That, that just made me kind of sad. Oh, I, well, I was already <laughs> sad, so it doesn't really matter. So you're telling me that in 10 years' time, kids will be going around singing the Phil Collins music from, from Tarzan or from Brother Bear or whatever he, whatever he were in. 
I don't know about those ones, but they probably sing the songs from Tangled or, I mean, Jesus Christ, kids today, they think Glee is the best thing on earth musically. Yeah, yeah, you've got me with that one. This is the thing, okay, well, you mentioned like Phil Collins or whatever, Sting, people who kind of like jump on to have the song in the end credits um, or in the sort of like maudlin montage sequence. Disney would do that. I'm not sure when they started, but like I definitely remember there was a period like Aladdin and the Lion King where they would take one of the musical numbers and then they'd do a sort of sappy produced version that would play at the end. Mm-hmm. But you remember the songs from the films where the characters are gamboling about the planes, singing their cute little ditties. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's slightly sort of different. One is music crafted to carry the story along. The other is the music crafted to assist with the marketing of the film yeah. and tie everything up in a bow at the end. Mm-hmm. There was like a really bad version of A Whole New World at the end of Aladdin. Yeah. And, you know, I remember as a kid thinking, just play the one from the film. Yeah. Because that was, I mean, that was the the soppy moment in the film when you were like a, a boy, you know, so right there on the carpet, get get bring the parrot back. <laughs> The end credits version was really kind of like syrupy and and overproduced, but that probably was a single. Mm-hmm. You know the most depressing thing about like other people's nostalgia when they're younger than you is when it's not nostalgia for you. It's something that happened quite recently. Yeah, and you know as I get older and I start to work amongst recent graduates who are like six, seven years younger than me, you spend your time in more situations where there are quite large age gaps. And you can hear people talk about, you know, what's nostalgic to them. And it's like, that was, like, what, only five, six years ago? But it turns out it was, like, 15. But by that point, I was 15, so that's not really nostalgia anymore. Or it's a different kind of nostalgia. It's certainly not my childhood. So when I hear people, like, talk about, like, really recent bands as uh, uh, being, you know, from their childhood or TV shows or things like that, it's like, oh, Jesus, really? I've become the guy, you know. <laughs> when I was younger, I would mainly spend time with people older than me and find myself generally in circles where when I was in my sort of, you know, early 20s, I would be with around people in their mid-30s. And they would hate me for many reasons, I'm sure. But the <laughs> one that they were vocal about was that I'd sort of regard things, you know, as being fond memories of my childhood, like um, Pulp Fiction. Probably shouldn't have been watching that as a kid. But I think that it had come out and they were already adults, but I was quite young when it came out. That was a source of contention, I think, amongst the old folks. And now I've become the old folks. I mean, oftentimes you can sort of look at what a kid finds appealing and then what, you know, older kids find to be nostalgic and be like, oh, God, really? That was crap. But to them it wasn't just because they happened to be... I mean, our nostalgia is all those 80s shows that are doing so well by being brought back in these movies and video games and new merchandise. And they were, for the most part, terrible. Mm-hmm. They were some of the worst animation ever. But you you hear people talk about, oh, Christ, what a, I need to think of, Thundercats. Yeah. On the site a couple of months ago, I was like railing against Ghostbusters. The show, not the film. The film is still good. Your memory coats all this this stuff that can be good and can be bad and it can be mediocre but whatever it is your brain kind of coats it in this goo of glory and worth and real artistic value and then when you watch stuff again as an adult 
that's the only time you can really sort of process, okay, well, this actually does hold up, or this was terrible, or, you know. But as a kid, you didn't really discern the quality between what was bad and what was good. It was just there, and it was colorful, and it was comforting. Yeah. Or you liked the music for, you know, something, some some nourishment it gave you. So kids, well, you just brought it up there. People are saying, where's the Thundercats movie? There's a there's a Transformers movie. They brought G.I. Joe back a couple of years ago. You know, all these kind of stuff that... When, when people were kids and they watched Transformers movie, those kids are now adults. And they've probably got kids of their own. Or at least they've got a disposable income. So when Michael Bay comes forward and says, I want to make the Transformers movie franchise... They throw money at him because they know that all these 30-year-olds, all these you know people between 25 and 35 have got all this disposable income. So they're going to remake this thing and, and try and capture that gooey kind of nostalgic reboot thing for that generation. So what I'm saying now is maybe the Frozen people have realized that after 15 or so years, maybe longer, of kind of piddly, mediocre kind of poppy songs in their films... They've realised that they need to go back to the kind of Howard Ashman, Alan Menken style of production for film, you know, where a film has such a great musical backbone and things like that. But the film obviously isn't just about music. It's, it's got a load of other stuff in it as well, I'm sure. <laughs> so what's it about? Are you asking me? I'm asking you, yeah. It doesn't seem like it's about Christmas in particular. No. Right? It's more of a kind of like fairy tale type thing yeah yeah that's do you right. not know because you're usually my go-to on the premises of these disney movies all right ben i'll tell you what it's about okay <laughs> basically you know the snow queen that whole story sure why not it's disney's version of that you know okay. how how tangled wasn't exactly rapunzel this isn't exactly the Snow Queen. Basically, there's two princesses. One of them has got freaky superpowers. One of them, I don't know, hasn't got freaky superpowers. The superpower is obviously to be able to create snow and ice. Mm-hmm. Isn't that like a Mario superpower? What, create snow and ice? Yeah, I think in one of the new ones you can do that. You get like a special flower and you can shoot like snowballs and it freezes the bad guys. Oh, right, And then yeah. you can pick them up and throw them. It's great. I always found it dead weird how a flower would give you fire. Yeah, I mean, there were some occasional inconsistencies in the, the logic of those games. Mm-hmm. Like, sometimes the, the laws of physics were... Like, for a guy that chubby, he really couldn't have been able to jump that high. <laughs> yes. He can run forever. Oh, yeah. Like, any Brooklyn plumber with that kind of midsection would last about five yards. Yeah. Before he'd want a calzone. <laughs> okay, snow and ice powers. So she's got these snow and ice powers, and, and so they get separated, and the kingdom is cloaked in an eternal winter. Uh-huh. Um, obviously, Anna has got the choice between two blokes, and then there's your Disney film. <laughs> there you go. Go see it. It's out in cinemas. Apparently, it features Josh Gad as a wise-cracking snowman. Oh, yeah. This is Olaf like the Snowman. Yeah, he's caused quite a bit of friction amongst the kind of trailer-watching people. And quite a few accusations that Disney have just stuck this character in as a kind of, like... Well, well, Steve put it in his review. He said that it was just like Sid the Sloth on Ice Age. Just this sort of wacky character just to stick in the film. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. What is the issue people are taking with that? 
Well, I, I think obviously when a trailer's cut, you can't show the whole film. You can't show the whole range of emotions that the character has. And this character's just basically coming across in the trailers as a little bit of a kind of useless comic foil that's just put in on the off chance that there'll be some merchandise and, you know, sell all that kind of stuff. Bait for the kids, basically. You know, oh, that's yeah. that funny snowman. Let's go see that funny snowman film. That kind of thing. Yeah, well, if it's at least funny. Mm. It only bothers me when it's not funny. Yeah. When they put in a, oh, God, I saw this awful film. It's on all the time, actually. Ah, Christ. Steve Carell, but he's Noah, but like a modern-day Noah. Yeah. And he's building a big ark in his backyard. Do you know the film I mean? Evan Almighty. Wanda Sykes is in that film, and everything that comes out of her usually quite funny mouth is so dreadful. But, like, it's literally every line is, like, a sassy line. It's like having a rake scraped across my face. (laughs) There is no purpose for that character, as far as I can tell. They've just put her in to pep up a scene. We were talking a little bit about Punch-Up last episode. This was... And it was utterly useless. And nothing she said was funny. But you could tell that they were all meant to be knee-slappers. Steve, my ribs were not tickled. No. So hopefully Josh Gad does a better job in this film. I like him... I haven't seen him in much, but he was in The Book of Mormon, which could be one of the funniest things in the last ten years. Mm, I really need to see that. That's that's on my wish list. Obviously in recent years, when, when comic foils have been stuck in films for no reason, especially animated films, people have obviously been a little bit concerned when they see one. I've yet to see Frozen, but... I'll, I'll give it a I'll give it a shot, you know. I'm not going to be put off by or make my mind up immediately before actually seeing the film properly. I can only go really by Steve's review, which if you want to read the review, it is on Squiggly.com. It's a, it's an odd ph- phenomena, isn't it? How people can they can. It's an odd what phenomena. Du, 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 du. It's an odd thing how <laughs> people can put down a film before even seeing it. I like to think that while while we do these podcasts, I don't think we've ever kind of had a go at a film before actually seeing it and giving a kind of informed sort of critical point of view as opposed to just Haven't saying... Haven't we? Yeah, I, I think we've been quite well. I think we've done quite well. If you know... Jesus Christ, we've got to make up for that now. Well... <laughs> well Turbo, free birds. I tell you what... Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> I tell you what looks terrible, Big Hero 6... Okay, yeah. that? I'll, I'll, I'll punch that up. I'm just going for future films that haven't even been haven't even been produced yet. No, it's 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 an odd thing how how people can sort of put off a film just by seeing a trailer. I mean, you're seeing a minute, two minutes of a film, and just like choice cuts that don't really tell much of the story. You know, it's an advert to get you in the cinemas. It's not a it's not a reflection of the final film. Pixar, Pixar are terrible at putting trailers together. You don't really find out much about the film hmm. from a Pixar trailer. But then then when you see the films, you're pleasantly surprised most of the time. You're right, actually. I do. Sorry, I'll try that again in a slightly less effeminate voice. You're right, actually. <laughs> the trailers for Pixar films tend to, to leave a lot out. And then, you know, you, you kind of have a vague, vague idea. I remember the trailer for Up really didn't tell you much at all other than it was a, a house in the air. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I just kind of went with a bunch of people just because it was a film that was out and then just being like, wow, there's so much stuff they could have put in the trailer to kind of push this film that they elected not to. And it, it, I mean, it clearly didn't do the film any 
damage. I think it did very well. But um, it's interesting that for the most part, a, a, a bad film, when they have a trailer out, they will milk every moment of worth from bits that seem to work and compress them into a trailer. And then, you know, you see the full film and, of course, it's all those moments of worth are the only good bits in it, just stretched out over 90 minutes of banal nonsense starring Jennifer Aniston, usually. <laughs> when a trailer is kind of, like, holding back, it's probably a good sign, you know? Yeah, I mean, can you imagine if, if they'd have stuck the, the opening 10 minutes of Up in the trailer or bits of it in, in the trailer... Can you imagine how disappoint how, how it wouldn't have had the same impact if you were expecting it? Yeah. You know, if it would have had the voiceover going, Up is an incredibly sad film that then gets a story about a kid and all this stuff happens <laughs> and just basically told you the entire story, it, it, it would really ruin it, wouldn't it? That was a very good, <laughs> that was a very good uh, precy of Up. Yeah. <laughs> I think now that that trailer guy passed on, I think you, you'd be a good candidate to fill his boots. Yeah. If you don't feel sad in the first ten minutes, then you have no soul. Did you, did that make you sad? Uh, yes, it did. I, it made me quite sad at the beginning. Yeah. I didn't cry. I'm a bloke. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, it really kind of tugged on the heartstrings, didn't it? What about yourself? Did you cry? Oh! <laughs> I mean, I, I, I get it, but, you know, come on. Yeah. No, you know what else I didn't cry at the Toy Story film, the new one. Everyone, everyone said you'll cry at the end. I, I'm still not sure which bit I was meant to cry at because people. I had a little wobble. I nearly cried. I, I've, I've never cried at a film, and there are films that I nearly cry at. And one of them is when Andy is handing the toys over to Bonnie at the end of Toy Story Three. The other one is when they're both with Tom Hanks. Why does he keep making me cry? Forrest Gump when he's talking to Jenny's grave. And <laughs> <laughs> he's just so stupid. And he's talking to his grave. Jenny sucked. Yeah, yeah, that's Jenny the thing. was an awful person. Yeah. He's just like, oh God, you're so stupid. Why are you so stupid? <laughs> yeah. Ah, oh, fuck Jenny. <laughs> Everyone else did. But um And a stupid kid who can see ghosts. So <laughs> Well, we've got a conversation here with with directors Chris Book and Jennifer Lee. Uh, We sent Steve Cavalier down to fancy London town to uh, get an interview with the directors of Disney's Frozen. The animation is kind of pushing the boundaries of uh, of CG. Mm -hmm. I've watched little bits on YouTube and stuff where where they they kind of describe it with uh, there's there's 2D animation involved Mm -hmm. and there's they acted out as well and they kind of use those two references. And in the rig too, I think. I think you know, we we call it sort of truth in acting, and and I think I I always feel like if you try to go too real, here's me the classic animator. But what I respond to, I should say, um, I'll speak from that side and then you can. Uncanny Valley. Yeah. If you try to go too real, it's off putting and it doesn't feel right. But I think if you embrace the best things that animation does, and which is part of creating this its own world and pulls you in and you stay there but you push it to kind of be able to get the best emotion out of it you can mm-hmm. so you really believe the emotions are, they're mm-hmm. doing you're in this beautiful place and I think mm-hmm. that um, for Frozen the animation team and led by Chris a lot um, really pushed it to a place it hadn't been before well and we also have you know, such a great team you know they've grown up together of course, in uh, Tangled and working with Glenn Keane, 
yeah. you know, who influenced them so much, and then Wreck-It Ralph, and then they, the, the same team yeah. they went into our movie, and so they'd learned so much, and they also want to push it more. They want to keep furthering their craft. And I think what, what happened, too, is we gave them a, a very emotional story to do with the characters, and they, they wanted to, to live up to that challenge, so with the rigs, they created new facial rigs that were even more... I could do even more subtle things than they had before with the eyes. And I mean, the fact that every, we can read discomfort, awkwardness, and um, yeah. impishness, like, you know, not just like happy, sad, confused, like, you could really read the subtext, you could fail what was going on in their heads. That was at a level we had never been able to do right. before. Um, and it was because they, because of the other movies, too. It's funny, when, they, when you get to the end of each movie, you feel proud of what you've done, but it's also, if only we had... If only we yeah. could have done this, yeah. the next one. So it's always the next one will do that, and they do that on each one. So um, yeah. I think that's why the animation is so special. You mm -hmm. know, we have an amazing group, and Lino DeSalvo is our head of animation. And he he really he mentored was so with Quentin and and was was great. And then combining that with Mark Hen, who's a two D um, hand drawn animator who's okay. in the room, there's something very special that um, hand drawn does. Uh, that appeal, appeal that they get, you know, in clear emotion. It, it's very clear, and he would help do that, so it kept that feel um, alive. And all the animators, there's such a great respect for for each art form. You know, mm -hmm. hand drawn with CG and CG hand drawn, and I, you know, CG animators with Mark in the room were just so happy to have his mind and his yeah. appeal. You know, going over their stuff, they yeah. they were just grateful. Mm -hmm. I, I read quite a lot, and I was quite fascinated by the. The development period up to Tangled, with when, as you say, Glenn Keane was involved, and um, mm -hmm. and I've got some quotes here, like that he um, it was um, the kind of best of both worlds seminar, and uh, you know he wanted to create a three-dimensional pencil, and um, mm -hmm. uh, the, the computer to bend to the will of the artist rather than the other way around, and mm -hmm. uh, to make make it as pliable as a pencil. You know, and, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, I was just fascinated about. You know, in practical terms, how how that was achieved because it, it you know it, you can see the results, mm -hmm. and I can I can see the the initial desire from Glen Keane and all you know all these you know ambitions, mm -hmm. but you know in the middle there, I'm really fascinated what well, happened. Yeah, you know, you know what we would do. I mean, just to, kind of what we would do when they were sh building the rigs. There was a balance back and forth, a lot of hand drawn um, expressions and tests and stuff to to start bringing them to life, and then mm -hmm. they work on the rigs, and they were fine tuning the rigs throughout the process um, to keep developing them. But we would, you know, with animation, we, you know, we do a rough blocking. We would, we would literally issue each shot. And uh, we would talk through the, the subtext of the shot, the emotion of the shot. And, um, and Lino Tsava was really great in pushing acting, truth in acting, and they bring in an acting coach. And it was really just about sort of the subtle things that make think people feel alive. Like, you know, when they go, Christoph, there's a moment where he goes to put the lantern on and he misses at first and then he connects mm. in. And just little things about... Um, the way humans move, and not just expression, but but the whole the whole person, yeah. the way they breathe, particularly when they sing, all that stuff. Um, we were constantly having conversations, and yeah. and you know it would take several weeks for one shot to to get through just mm. character animation. That's not including tech yeah. anim and lighting. And, and I think another yeah. thing that that really helped, and and Lena was also instrumental in this too. But as we would talk about the scenes, we didn't just hand out you know a scene at a time. Mm -hmm. which is a lot of times mm -hmm. what you do yeah. for animators, yeah. we handed out the whole sequence. So what the animators could see, and we even kind of put string up at one point to show the high, yeah. the emotional point of each oh, character. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 
so that the animators would know, because being an animator myself, starting as one, you always want to show what you can do. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, I can do this, this scene, I can do this. Yeah. Well, not every scene should be no. at a 10. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah it's right? true. You have to know when yeah. to get there. And so they're very aware of where their scene fit in the sequence. So, you know, sometimes it's something much more subtle and the characters are building and they may not be doing that scene where all the emotion's going to hit. So mm -hmm. yeah. everybody was aware of where they were in the yeah. sequence. And then so that we, we had supervisors for each character, basically. Mm -hmm. You know, Becky yeah. was supervisor of Anna and, and Tony Smead for Kristoff. And they would do rounds several times a day, check in with all the animators. So everyone could feel like they were never just working in the darker isolation. It was always in continuity with each other. And there were some animators that worked together. We did do, you know, video reference, which would be uh, fun stuff. They would, we have a lot of funny clips of about to kiss scenes and moments to, of to, to the, the men. To the guys, you know, trying to do a little emotional moment between Hans and Anna. Um, no, and, and it's just, which and, is very yeah, funny, but just, they did a good job acting. Yeah, they went and they went in the snow. They went to Cheyenne, Wyoming, and were trudging through snow in dresses. Even the men to understand how hard it is and the way your body breaks through snow. And yeah. so there is a a real respect for capturing the the truth of how we move, mm. but then not ever losing that style that makes it yeah. feel like otherworldly and transports still you. Caricature, yeah. always caricature. Like a balance in there between reality and stylization. Right. You right. go too far well, one way. We always way. talk about, we, yeah. always talk about yeah. we never create these and, and characters the same way. We never go after realism or realistic things, but, but we go after believability. Yeah. And that always came, yeah. that was actually a lesson I learned from Eric Larson. Right, yeah. You yeah. know, one of the Nine Old Men. He was one of my mentors. So yeah, it's that right, same, right. kind of same thing. Go for the believability. Right, yeah. So. One of the... The aspects of the animation that's so good is the, is the kind of um, almost like the internal uh, life that's going on. So so you know with live action acting, you know a good performance is when uh, they may be saying one thing, but you can see they're thinking another yes. thing behind. You know, and that that's always been really difficult with animation because because it's much more crude than than the subtleties that you're talking about in the human face. See, lucky me, I didn't know that. So when I came in, <laughs> I came in and was she was asking for it. constantly like, talking about the subtext of the yeah. characters and saying this is not what she's saying this, but what she's really feeling this, and this is what. Or there's two girls standing next to each other, and you need to feel the awkwardness and all of that. And the animators though loved it because they, you know, I wasn't telling them how to do it. I was mm. just telling them what was going on inside, and then they would deconstruct that. And luckily, the rigs had been built in such a way where they. could could do that. I mean, mm -hmm. never had more flexibility. Yeah. And, you know, slight shifts here yeah, and underneath, yeah. and I'd like pinch the lower lids, not the upper lids. And, yeah. and and they worked really. And I think that's where Mark and 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 Chris were really helpful. And and sort of they could draw it in two D in hand drawn, and then they could achieve it. And it might not be because they don't know always what the solution is, mm -hmm. but they often would. And it was just a matter of connecting the two. Yeah. yeah. And it sort of made me think that um, you know in the past. Animation has always been much more successful as a kind of children's thing. It's almost been kind of dismissed a bit as, a, oh, that's for kids, you know. And part of the reason for that is that it's, it's difficult to tell very grown-up stories about subtle emotions because you're restricted by the, the slightly crude... Um, yeah. Why the faces were, were you know, drawn or, or you know, portrayed. But well, now it seems with this level, you now. can, yeah. <laughs> you might be able to make. I mean, when I say adult films, I don't mean X-rated. I mean, you yeah. know, yeah. grown-up <laughs> stories in animation. You know. Yeah, and I think we're always pushing 
um, and, and we did a lot with Frozen, a push to have the story resonate on many levels, not just, you know, what we found as we showed to audiences, kids go right to, it's about fear versus love. And yeah. then grown-ups go, it's about me and my sister and that time we didn't get together. And, and grown-ups take it much more personal and they connect with their layers of life. And the kids go right to the heart of the matter. And, and so our, our goal is to really make it resonate uh, for adults as well. I mean, because we want it to resonate for us. That's, that's why we do these stories. So. Yeah. And I think the technology think is, is there today that we can do those subtleties. And hopefully in Frozen we've you know, at least achieved that, that uh, adults yeah. can you know, relate to it on a different level, just yeah. watching the acting. So that was Squiggly's own Stephen Cavalier talking to Chris Buck and Jennifer Lee, the directors of Disney's Frozen, which is out in cinemas now. So if you want a little Christmassy treat, why not get yourself down to the cinemas for a little bit of Disney magic? Well, that was a podcast shock full of animation talent interspersed with meandering wafflage by myself and uh, your good self, Steve. But we're the bow, I suppose, that wraps up the uh, the package. And uh, what a package it is, Steve. What a package it is. I would have referred to us more as the kind of disappointing socks that you open on Christmas Day. But, you know, <laughs> fair enough. You know, We're like when parents are like cruel to their kids and they'll wrap a really good present up in a jumper. <laughs> so the kid opens his, oh, forget, and then realizes there's something cool inside. We're the disappointment that surrounds the goodness. <laughs> it's a winning formula, Ben. It's a formula we've enjoyed putting forward for, well, in our second year now. I mean, it is obviously, it's a great pleasure putting these podcasts together, and it's been a pleasure interviewing everyone over the last year. Uh, we've had some fantastic guests, and if you want to listen back to the podcasts, uh, you can listen to all of those. And it's been a pleasure working with uh, all the writers. Uh, and contributors on squiggly.com this year as well. And I'm sure you'll agree with me, Ben. It gets better every year. Well, thank you especially to this episode's guests, Richard Williams, for taking the time to talk to us over the phone. Also, many thanks to Mo Sutton for helping getting it organized, and to Jude Lister and Kieran Argo from Encounters, as well as the good people at Plaster for all their help in setting it up too. We'd also like to thank Ian McKinnon and Peter Saunders and all the team at the Bradford Animation Festival. We'd like to thank the directors of Frozen, Mr Chris Buck and Jennifer Lee. We'd also like to thank the producer. And we'd also like to thank animation historian Jerry Beck for being on the podcast. A fine gaggle of people and a fine note to end the year on. The Squiggly Podcast is edited and produced by Ben Mitchell. It's presented by myself, Steve Henderson and Ben Mitchell. The music is by Wesley Allard and Ben Mitchell. If you wish to follow me on Twitter, it's at Mr. Underscore Henderson. If you wish to follow Ben on Twitter, at Ben L. Mitchell. Squiggly is also an online animation magazine, so for all the latest news, reviews and interviews, please visit squiggly.com. You can follow us on Twitter as well, at Squiggly, or press like on Facebook, which is Squiggly Magazine. So many options. So until the next time, have a very happy holidays, and we'll see you in the new year. Ho, ho, ho. Ho, ho, ho. Ho, ho, ho. Ho, 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 ho. Ho, 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 ho. I'm in my toilet doing this. Ho, ho, ho.